This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such an imperial motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 18. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today we are going to enter into the record the second installment of the series that uh, began last week with the 1980 October surprise and as promised today we're going to dive into the world that was won by that shady backroom Paris hotel room deal by the likes of uh, William J. Casey George Herbert Walker Bush and others. I think the the activities of the Reagan Bush administration throughout the 1980s are truly such a Catholic octopod um, that yeah. there's probably um, you know I very unironically I think posted on Twitter that you know the last episode was Iran Contra First Blood one slash question mark question mark and this is truly a one slash question mark question mark thread that we're yeah uh, it's like an ongoing here. creepy creepy pasta um <laughs> that is always part one of question mark never it will never end yeah yeah i i um, really don't think that we could put a terminal number on the end of this thread because i am absolutely not convinced that the criminal activities uh, that were spawned in this era have ever truly ended. In fact, I think that they are probably more integrated into every aspect of the American economy and the government, military, law enforcement organizations um, than ever. And I don't think they ever really went away. Yeah, I mean, the Reagan administration in general, I think that even somewhat less woke people do recognize that it fundamentally transformed, like, uh, you know, uh, to use the scary Obama term, um, it really changed America and, like, in terms of its, like, mentalité and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, various institutional things, like the tax uh, structure, for instance, like yes, the, yes, like, it's um, completely different. Like people will often talk about how, like under Nixon, there was like a more, uh, you know, extreme. Uh, there was greater taxes for like the the wealthiest por uh, portion of society than there is now. 
under sure sure people even point out uh kind of odd things that you wouldn't think of today about how you know it was nixon that established the epa and nixon even flirted with giving single-payer health insurance to everybody and even universal basic income and things like that that would Mm -hmm. be absolutely unthinkable for any republican post-1980 yeah but that shows you how the 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 overton window as glenn beck would say uh radically shifted throughout the 1980s and never really snapped back i think as we'll get to in this episode um, any maybe of those less woke people that recognize the nefariousness of the Reagan Bush years, but think that a certain Governor William Jefferson Clinton um, turned back the clock or shifted us back on a more leftward path is uh, is incredibly naive and yeah, actually could not really... be further from the truth. Yeah, I wasn't really super up on most of the Mina stuff, like, and it really is quite damning, uh, mm-hmm. and it really adds a new perspective to the kind of pincer move that happened, because, yeah, like, Clinton, everyone sort of knows he was a Reaganated heart, and, like, f- since his presidency, like, the quote-unquote left in America hasn't really recovered from some of the pieties of Reaganism, but mm-hmm. you can really kind of see that it wasn't like just an accident of doing what was popular. It it was like yeah, uh, much more uh, sinister than that. Uh, he was plugged into a much larger yeah. agenda, and so you brought up Mina there. So today, I think an attempt to tackle at least in subliminal jihad terms like not take too long so we mean maybe it'll be three hours but uh so we don't spin off absolutely forever and ever and ever we we decided that at least for this installment we're going to focus on like one specific tentacle of the iran contra uh project the iran contra enterprise and it's one that even though this scandal most people are familiar with sort of that term iran contra and they're aware that it was a scandal but this was the aspect of it that was too much of a hot potato for the Washington press corps, really the entire media, to be able to face up to. And as we'll see in this episode, uh, a handful of enterprising journalists and whistleblowers uh, kind of brought a lot of this stuff to light in the 1990s and then similar, similarly had their careers and reputations completely annihilated um, and in one case uh, resulted in the death. Uh, that would be Gary Webb, of course, who will come up very prominently in this episode. But we're going to focus on the drug connection of Iran-Contra. So we're going to be more on the Contra side as opposed to the Iran side. We talked last week about how the, like, how dare you, sir, sell weapons to the bad mullahs? You know, that thing was almost like a limited hangout, uh, like a a kind of little smokescreen they put over the real scandal. Because, like we discussed, I think a lot of Americans could kind of write that off or, and in some cases, even be supportive of it. I mean, um, as we saw in the, the hearings that came out when Iran-Contra supposedly was exposed, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North kind of proudly said, basically, uh, that, you know, yes, so what if we were illegally selling weapons to the Iranians and then using those profits to buy weapons for the Contras? I still think, like, by golly, I still think it was the right thing to do to stop communism from encroaching on our hemisphere. And, you know, a lot of Americans sincerely agreed with that, unfortunately. Um, And it's not surprising to see that. But 
it's a whole other question when you talk about um, would most Americans support selling guns to the Nicaraguan Contras and then accepting payment in literally tons upon tons of cocaine that was then brought into the United States and spread predominantly in urban African-American communities and poor black communities. And um, as we will see in our recounting of this sordid tale, that this coincided with the innovation of crack cocaine, which then spawned this absolutely horrendous crack epidemic throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s. And provided the public uh, support for a vast militarization of law enforcement, of local law enforcement in this country that led to many of the problems that people were marching and protesting and rioting in the streets about this year. But I think it's very fascinating that in all of this discussion about um, you know, Black Lives Matter and police brutality and all these things, I have not seen a single person this year on any kind of mainstream news outlet um, bring up this incredibly important facet of how did we get to this point? You know, how, how was this paradigm of policing rolled out to the country? How was it accepted mm-hmm. and even demanded by voters? And, you know, this is literally, we are living in the legacy world of the 1980s drug war. And as we see, like, it is not a separate issue from the Iran-Contra covert wars that were illegally, even by our, you know, very uh, limited and flawed bourgeois um, legislative system, they were nonetheless illegal at the time, and they went and did them anyways. And the consequences, uh, to paraphrase, you know, a a certain Unabomber, uh, have been a disaster for the human race (laughs) and for Americans as well. Yes. So, um, So I guess where... Where do we begin? I mean, I guess we've been following the the narrative in a kind of linear fashion from the October surprise, which would take us to 1981, when Reagan and Bush are brought into office. And as I mentioned a little bit uh, in the last episode about the, the interesting book that I found, Peter Schweitzer's Victory from 1994, mm-hmm. wherein most of these Reagan officials were bragging about the full court press, like total war kind of operation, uh, total pressure campaign that they decided to put on the Soviet Union and its allies when they came into office in 1981. This was basically a central pillar of that strategy. Now, we'll probably, I think we can take a whole episode to kind of talk about the the sort of anti-Soviet context and Mm -hmm. all the different tentacles that that had. But just rest assured that even though, of course, drug trafficking to raise money for Contra death squads is not discussed in this book because these some of these people, I mean, they had just been pardoned for they were, you know, maybe facing going to prison for doing a lot of this stuff. So they kind of they tread lightly on the Contra stuff, except to say that, yes, of course, we were supporting the Contras, but they they focused more on Afghanistan and uh, the, you know, Poland operations and things like the Strategic Defense Initiative and uh, and economic types of warfare they were waging against the Soviets. But basically part of the what became kind of known as the Reagan Doctrine 
was basically a reversal of Carter's somewhat more cautious approach that basically said you have to wage kind of aggressive confrontation with the Soviets and their allies and people they support um, all around the world, you know, just basically throw everything you have at it. And on top of that, especially in Central and South America, because at this time in 1979, um, there was a uh, socialist revolution um, in Nicaragua, which was a long time, I would say, kind of a neo-colonial U.S. protectorate that had been ruled by the family of Anastasio Somoza, who is a right-wing anti-communist dictator uh, that, you know, much like Batista in Cuba in the 1950s, uh, had kind of a stranglehold over the entire economy and political system of Nicaragua. Um, but due to uh, a lot of, you know, basically uh, ignoring and oppressing the, uh, the vast, you know, impoverished majority of the population and also there was a terrible earthquake in the late 70s where i think samosa like stole most of the international aid that flowed into um nicaragua and like failed to rebuild the city and it really uh, brought the animosity towards his regime to a boiling point in 1979 uh this young movement uh called the Sand the sandinista national liberation front um mm -hmm. uh basically uh, the FSLN, they took power in, uh, in an insurrection and Somoza fled Nicaragua. Um, and he actually fled to Paraguay, where in 1980, uh, some Sandinista commandos assassinated him, I believe by shooting an RPG at his motorcade and just blowing him up. Um, so, you know, that was pretty cool. And of course, this this basically, so Carter, even though Carter was anti-Sandinista and kind of, you know, uh, went along with the status quo of supporting Somoza, much like the Shah, when Somoza fled and this regime toppled, Carter kind of did not, step in in any kind of strong way to, you know, he didn't send any military interventions. Um, he kind of let this happen, especially in the views of people like William J. Casey and mm -hmm. the circles around Reagan. Uh, this was, a, you know, yet another example of Carter being a total cuck and basically letting a, you know, a Marxist revolution occur in a country that we considered, per the Monroe Doctrine, to be kind of a vassal state under our, you know, our sphere of influence. And yeah. the, they became very uh, worried that basically Nicaragua was going to become another Cuba. Yeah, and I remember even some of this being used to, like, smear, like, even after the fact, if people on the left, like, I remember people bringing this up about Bernie Sanders, like, at some point, maybe in 2016 or in this recent election, where I guess he attended some rally that was, like, in support of the Sandinistas, and that sort of supported them in other ways. And yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. do you regret that people said, like, death to America or whatever, or something like that? Like, not even like death to america like or, but yeah mm -hmm. it was like after the fact of like supporting the contras like 
insane writer. Yeah, like, he actually went on a trip to Nicaragua, I think maybe in like 1985 or 86, and mm-hmm. he was welcomed by the government there. And he gave some, like, press conferences where he was speaking, you know, I think they're doing very good uh, with the education system and providing health care to the people. And, I mean, Bernie, in a way, was like, I mean, he was always kind of a trot, but he was at least kind of, like, cooler in the 80s because he would would offer support to, like, Cuba and Nicaragua and went on a little vacation to the Soviet Union and was, uh, was actually much more focused on talking about these like cia covert operations and things like that which are kind of gone from modern particularly 2020 bernie uh really had like nothing to say about u.s foreign policy Mm -hmm. in this regard uh which is you know you hate to see it yeah but it's crazy like the way that the status quo has sort of consolidated around the idea that like the sandinistas were in some way bad or that like this was acceptable like Mm -hmm. the contra Mm -hmm. situation anyway but yeah 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 i mean i even and you know today there were even more recently because of course the president of nicaragua today it can get a little confusing but daniel ortega who was one of the young leaders of the sandinistas and did become the president in the 1980s during the civil war um he is still the president today he i believe came back in um i think in the the maybe the late 2000s uh after getting voted out in 1990 which was really kind of it was like america had a gun to to the head of the nicaraguan people and said if you do not vote the sandinistas out like we are going to continue this contra war forever and you will never know peace your country is going to get ripped apart and so people kind of voted in some kind of moderate more pro-western person but then ortega came back but of course ortega today uh, like you know you really do hate to see it he he's a little bit more of a uh, a little bit more of a revisionist more like a social democrat of course he still is allied with venezuela and cuba and there's still kind of um a little bit of a spirit of sandinismo but also he's like allied with the catholic church now and a lot more business interests a lot of contras have kind of been allowed to be uh rehabilitated including a uh, a, a very prominent one named danilo blandone who we're going to get to later in this story who's now like a rich like landowner in nicaragua <laughs> if he's still alive i don't know if he's still alive but as of like seven or eight years ago he was back in nicaragua like living high on the hog and not in a jail where he probably belonged. Um, but uh, yeah. but so now there's protest against, you know, Daniel Ortega, and they have a very kind of um, color revolution kind of vibe to them. But, but like, also, it's, it's hard to... The, the kind of a lot of the Sandinismo has been drained out. So even a lot of people that were involved in the Sandinista government in the 80s um, are a little bit more like ambivalent or, you know, some of them claim that they were kind of pushed, marginalized, pushed to the side. Um, I, uh, I actually went and saw there was an interesting documentary that came out to me last year called Las Sandinistas. And it was a documentary about. Um, I went to a screening of it here in L.A., and it was about all the, it profiled a bunch of women who were prominent leaders and rose to, like, high positions in the Sandinista Revolution. And it was really cool. I mean, the, the, the part of the movie that was kind of mostly about them and about the revolution, and it was pretty sympathetic and kind of almost, like, gave this, like, like girl power punk rock kind of aesthetic to, like, the Sandinistas, um, which, you know, okay, better than fashy Western punk rock, at least. Um, 
but uh, but then you know, kind of in the last chapter, a lot of these same people, um, and I, I don't want to like you know cast aspersions on their disillusionment, but they they did seem to be you know they weren't necessarily like super hardcore supporters of Ortega as president anymore. But then at this uh, Q and A afterwards, they had some young like first the second generation Nicaraguan girls there who had gotten involved kind of in like Twitter activism. I forget what kind of group it was like an SOS Nicaragua hashtag SOS Nicaragua thing, which I've seen and like gave me strong like CIA color revolution vibes the whole time. And these were like college students and whatever, and you know some of them had come here like in the '90s, and they were all kind of talking about how like see like. Like Sandinistas were great, and that's why we need to rise up again today. Because like Daniel Ortega has betrayed the kind of the values of that revolution, and he's a big bad corrupt guy now, and we need to get rid of him. And I remember kind of asking a question. I was a little triggered, and I asked a question <laughs> of like, uh, well, like, is there still kind of any kind of spirit of Sandinismo in Nicaragua, like with these people that used to be in the revolution? I mean, is there a is there a constituency that still has kind of um, Marxist kind of socialist ideals? And they were like, they got a little like defensive and were like, um, it's not really about like most people don't like care about like Marxism anymore. And like that's old. <laughs> and basically like it's just about freedom and having your voice heard and blah, 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 blah. And it just it gave me a kind of bad vibes that um, I'm sure these kids yeah. feel like they're doing the right thing, but that it's like. Do you, do, do you not have you not internalized the lessons of like what happened in the 80s? I mean, the United States, they're kind of acting like like none of them noticed that the U.S. was vehemently against um, Ortega to this day. And it was probably for a lot of like geopolitical reasons. And they just seemed kind of like, eh, whatever, like he's a bad man. And, uh, you know, he he marginalized these women. So he's like a sexist. So he has to go. And it, it just there wasn't a lot of room for a kind of more um, like, I don't know. It's like they didn't have the fire of like standing up to the U.S., and saying fuck off you know like yeah. we're gonna run our own country and as as disappointing maybe as ortega's you know kind of uh government is today like what is the only alternatives i see are m much more like right wing uh kind of forces so why would you want to like are you cool with like the children of contras coming into power uh basically uh it seemed like they weren't necessarily kind of mad as long as there was kind of a liberal gloss of like human rights and like uh you know things like like that so that that's Freedom kind of having your voice heard is definitely like the you know foundation for a good politics like any <laughs> you know freedom and having your voice heard like you can't go wrong uh with that that is definitely like very rigorous I think um, Bill Casey but, and Count Alexandre de Monchet would full wholeheartedly agree. It's all about liberty and uh, a voice of liberty being yeah, heard. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mention that because, like, there was also, like, during the, the support for the Contras, like, there was a huge propaganda campaign that, like, Oliver North, in part, sponsored, like, to promote, like, the, you know, to sort of... Uh, whitewash the image of the Contras as being like, you know, a, a group that could be supported and sort of, you know, to gloss over the various atrocities that they committed and that type of thing. Mm -hmm, um, like mm -hmm. a huge amount of money was like funneled, like op-eds were written by people whose CIA connections were concealed, mm -hmm. like, you know, all these different sort of firms and, and orgs were, were funded to sort of, you know, create an image of, of the Contras as, 
as being, you know, something that the U.S. could in good conscience uh, support. Yeah, I mean, Reagan himself said multiple times he compared them. He also he he used similar uh, language both for the Nicaraguan Contras and the Afghan Mujahideen, which basically he would compare them to the American founding fathers. He would call them freedom fighters, and he would say things like, "Well, you know, if uh, if if people say that you know the Contras are, be- you know." I think the Contras are fighting for freedom, and, uh, you know, if you call me a Contra, well, then, uh, by golly, I think I am a Contra, you know, (laughs) and kind of stuff like that. Like, he called himself a Contra Uh, and said he's not going to stop supporting these people, even though... so they they started early in the 80s um basically the all the just like with cuba all of the rich landowners and like the bourgeoisie of nicaragua that got run out of the country and had their like plantations nationalized things like that they were all incensed because of course their quote-unquote liberty had just been taken away from them so they started when reagan came in a year or so after this revolution they finally realized oh like we have we finally have an enthusiastic ally in the white house and of course william j casey was super about uh stopping the sandinistas and returning this uh you know nicaragua to an american friendly government no matter how violent or fascistic it was so they started setting up um assistance to arm the contras um however Congress, which at the time was controlled by Democrats, uh, was not as on board with this. And basically pretty early into Reagan's presidency, there were three legislative amendments that became known as the Boland Amendments that basically limited U.S. government assistance to the Contras. So the first Boland Amendment was in the House Appropriations Bill of 1982, um, uh, sponsored by Massachusetts Democrat Edward Boland, um, and basically the Boland Amendment proposed by Edward Boland was a highly limited, ambiguous compromise because the Democrats did not have enough votes for a comprehensive ban. The amendment gained traction due to a widespread opposition among the American public to funding the Contras. Holly Sklarpeg's public opposition to Contra funding at the time of Reagan's election at a consistent trend of two to one. So two-thirds of Americans did not want to get involved in this fucking Mm -hmm. counter-revolutionary war. Uh, The amendment covered only appropriated funds spent by intelligence agencies such as the CIA. Some of Reagan's national security officials used non-appropriated money spent by the National Security Council to circumvent the amendment. No court ever made a determination whether Boland covered the NSC, and because the law was a prohibition rather than a criminal statute, no one could be indicted for violating it. Opponents alleged that the White House violated the amendment. Congress later resumed aid to the Contras, totaling over $300 million. The Sandinistas were voted out of power in 1990 and then voted back in 16 years later in 2006. Uh, The Boland Amendment prohibited the federal government from providing military support, quote, for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua. It aimed to prevent CIA funding of rebels opposed to the revolutionary provisional junta. The amendment sought to block Reagan administration support for the Contra rebels. The amendment was narrowly interpreted by the Reagan administration to apply only to U.S. intelligence agencies, that's important, allowing the National Security Council, which is not labeled an intelligence agency, LOL, to channel funds to the Contra rebels. Um, To block the funding through the NSC, the amendment was later changed to prohibit any funds for military or paramilitary operations. Um, 
administration officials argued the Bolin Amendment or any act of Congress would not interfere with the President's conduct of foreign policy by restricting funds, as the President could seek funds from private entities or foreign governments, also important. In this spirit, and despite the Bolin Amendment, Vice Admiral John M. Poindexter and his deputy, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, secretly diverted to the Nicaraguan Contras millions of dollars in funds received from a secret deal that some alleged had explicit presidential approval, which was the sale of tank, anti-tank and aircraft missiles to Iran, in spite of Reagan's public pledge not to deal with terrorists. Uh, in, in November 1986, as we discussed, a pro-Syrian paper in Lebanon revealed the secret deal um, to the world. This came as Democrats won back control of the Senate in the 1986 elections. In public hearings of a joint House-Senate committee convened for purposes of investigating the affair, Democrats sought to prosecute Lieutenant Colonel North for his role. The final report published after the hearings blamed, blamed oh, this is annoying, blamed Reagan's passive style of leadership for allowing the conduct of foreign policy without involvement of any elected official. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, so it's actually interesting there that the, the Boland Amendment, typical Democrats, even in the 80s, um, is kind of full of loopholes and lack the teeth to actually prosecute people in the Reagan administration for violating this. And yeah. basically, um, but I think what's interesting in this summary is it did kind of push them to start looking at other avenues besides just direct CIA support um, for supporting the Contra operation. Um, and basically uh, use both foreign governments and private entities. Um, and this also links up with a kind of notorious and very important executive order. This is actually uh, signed in December 1981, and mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's known to this day, it's very important, uh, it's executive order 12333. 12333 and it basically it changed a lot of rules about basically like what the intelligence agency could do and what its responsibilities were in regards to various like covert operations and also it it, it laid kind of the groundwork for um all of these operations and in fact like has been invoked it was invoked heavily and i think even amended by george w bush after 9 11 to give the executive all kinds of ridiculous authority i think part of this was used to collect mass surveillance on american citizens um it's also uh there's also a clause in it i believe that kind of vaguely says that um it, it, it has some fuzzy language in there, which I believe was kind of put in there at the behest of William J. Casey, that basically said that the CIA um, only has to report crimes that it's aware of related to international drug trafficking um, as, in accordance with national security imperatives. So yeah. it, it left this kind of vague area. And there was also... I. I remember Michael Rupert mentioned it in a lecture years ago. Um, I've had trouble finding the actual like memorandum, but apparently Bill Casey himself like wrote a kind of guidance memo in the early 80s around this time that essentially said that CIA officers were not allowed to participate in drug trafficking or drug dealing, but CIA assets, on the other hand, were under no such prohibition. So yeah, you start well, anything that's like incidental, you know, if they're like, if incidentally they benefit from any of this stuff, 
like, then it's okay. That's going to be very important here um, as we dive into this. So they they start to, you know, they start giving guns, but then Congress says you can't do this through, like, official, you know, CIA officers or use uh, military stuff. So Reagan, the Reagan administration didn't agree with that. So they started to set up kind of more informal private cutout networks in several different parts of the country using a number of kind of deniable assets. And I think the the two main places that we're going to focus on today are what happened in California, specifically in Los Angeles and South Central Los Angeles, and a tiny little town in western Arkansas named Mina, which has a small little airport. It's not close to any highway. It's like very secluded. And this little town of Mina, Arkansas, became one of the main transit points for both sending planes full of guns down to staging areas to give to the Nicaraguan Contras and also to bring back plane loads filled with cocaine that was then distributed throughout the country. And I think, you know, it's not a hard sell to tell anybody that the 80s were like a cocaine decade, right? It was literally... Mm-hmm. ubiquitous in like american culture i mean it had been around before but it was it was a very expensive drug and it was not it certainly wasn't a popular drug among poor people right yeah uh well there were some uh poor people i guess who uh use cocaine but uh yeah there's like uh i mean definitely there were but yeah um there was also obviously like the invention of crack and the sort of you know beginning of the rift between the two drugs and and their Mm -hmm. sort of use and yeah so that definitely did happen but i i think that there were certainly i mean like uh superfly you know he's like a coke dealer uh not really a crack dealer at that at that point was he Uh, was he a heroin dealer i forget um, I think that he, maybe he was dealing heroin too, but he definitely did deal cocaine. I think cocaine mm-hmm. was his main thing. Yes, um, yes. And yeah. and one of the biggest uh, drug dealers who uh, we'll touch on the story of um, in a little bit, uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, uh, said that Superfly was kind of like his... He saw that movie when he was a late teenager and amidst kind of the poverty of growing up in South Central L.A., uh, he kind of saw he wanted to be Superfly, basically. Yeah, that's what he said. He wa- he wanted to be Superfly. And he actually, in a way, I mean, he kind of became Superfly. He almost became a millionaire in the 1980s and was the one person who, um, like by his own admission, kind of innovated the idea of crack or what he originally called Ready Rock. Um, mm-hmm. when he started selling cocaine in the early 80s in South Central L.A. And uh, as we all know, you know, crack went from, you know, uh, in a short period of time over a couple years, it started to spread all around the country uh, and mostly in poor urban black neighborhoods and became this, like, unstoppable scourge that tore so many neighborhoods apart and uh and also you know kind of provoked or provided the you know provided the justification for an extreme ramping up of like law enforcement and prisons and things of that nature by instigating a moral panic which again i think uh we'll read an article um <clears throat> in a little bit uh from the covert action um 
information bulletin that talks about how that in in and of itself was a psyop by the Reagan administration to scare the shit out of American voters uh, into supporting like tough on crime policies that particularly had kind of a racial, a heavy racial tinge to them. get to the early 80s there are all these Nicaraguan operatives and it appears that a deal was struck like we said by which they would bring guns down to Central America which the Contras needed and then the Contras instead of paying for those guns in cash they would pay for them in you know kilos and tons of cocaine and then the cocaine needed to be sold somewhere so they smuggled the cocaine back into the United States through various uh, CIA cutout air bases mm-hmm. and then distributed it um, down a pipeline, probably in, probably used organized crime somewhere in this link, though uh, it's a little murky, um, and then eventually found its way to street-level dealers and gangs, which had kind of the infrastructure to sell it in every community around the country. And then, of course, the the money that was earned from selling all this cocaine was used to buy more guns, which were then, like, sent back down and were probably, honestly, used for a whole variety of off-the-books intelligence activities, probably not just solely the Contras. Of course, there were, there were insurgencies and... Uh, and kind of left-wing movements in El Salvador, in Honduras, in Guatemala. There were mm-hmm. various types of wars going on um, in all of these countries in the 80s. And the forces, it should be mentioned, that these were not just kind of, you know, anti-communist, like kind of more conservative. These were like absolutely bloodthirsty 
raping and pillaging death squads that um, that were operating under a manual, a counterinsurgency manual written by a fellow that we brought up in the last episode, Dwayne Dewey Claridge, who is the head of Latin American operations for the CIA in the 1980s, and who we mentioned was the station chief in Rome in the very early 1980s, and um, potentially had connections to Licio Gelli and Operation Gladio, and uh, the Propaganda Due Lodge, and all of these things. And he wrote an infamous counterinsurgency manual um, that basically outlined uh, all of the tactics that you should use, which I think included everything from, like, raping people to torturing people to uh, assassinating, um, you know, sympathizers, uh, kidnapping, terrorist bombings, like, every kind of, like, fascist, Verwolf tactic uh, that you could imagine um, basically was like in this manual, which is authored by Claridge. Um, I just wanted to point out here on his Wikipedia. I actually, I have to correct something from the previous week. I believe that I said that Dewey Claridge was involved in the 2012 Benghazi attacks. I think I was actually mistaken. I was thinking of a very similar veteran CA operative. I think his name was Tyler Drumheller who also died about five or six years ago. And I think he was the person who owned the security company, uh, the security contractor that hired locals who abandoned guarding the compound before it was attacked and maybe had, you know, advanced knowledge that it was going to happen. Um, and that guy's sus as well, but I don't think Dewey Claridge was involved with Benghazi. So I will retract that. But what he, <laughs> what, what he was involved with, um, that he, just reading this, so he, uh, he he was born in Nashua, New Hampshire, to a, quote, staunchly Republican family, um, and uh, he went to the private college prep Petty School and then went to Brown University. At graduate school, he went to Columbia's Graduate School of International Affairs and then joined the CIA in 1955, so this guy's like an old head. He then rose to the ranks of the CIA, quote, in a normal career pattern up to the late 70s, being chief of the CIA station in Istanbul, where he maintained close contact contacts with the counter guerrilla the turkish stay behind anti-communist organization um which i believe yeah is literally even wikipedia says was the turkish branch of operation gladio um and i i think i don't know if they're absolutely synonymous with the gray wolves but um they're mm -hmm. probably a, a deep overlap there of course one of the gray wolves shot pope john paul ii um he transferred to rome before uh, becoming chief of the latin american division in 1981 uh, according to the New York Times, from his days running secret wars for the CIA in Central America to, to his consulting work in the 90s on a plan to insert special operations troops in Iraq to oust Saddam Hussein, Mr. Claridge has been an unflinching cheerleader for American intervention overseas. Uh, he directed... Several of the CIA's more notorious operations in Latin America, including the 1984 mining of Nicaraguan harbors um, and... Uh, and when asked about his role in the mining, um, he said, quote, so we decided to go big time for the economics, all right? So I was sitting at home one night, frankly having a glass of gin, and I said, you know, the mines have got to be the solution. I knew we had them. We'd made them out of, out of sewer pipe, and we had good fusing system on them, and we were ready. And you know, and you know they wouldn't really hurt anybody because they just weren't that big a mine, all right? Yeah, with luck, bad luck, we might hurt somebody, but pretty hard, you know? Um, so this guy, I think he also popped up in the, uh, I watched the 
freeway crack in the system documentary um, about uh, freeway Ricky Ross's story. And Dewey, Dewey Clarage popped up in a TV interview in that, that it just like kind of like Richard Allen that we talked about in the last episode, like somebody asking him about, you know, what, and he goes, conspiracy, that's bullshit. There was no conspiracy. Give me a break. That's <laughs> bullshit. You're just stupid. You're just stupid. You don't understand. There's never been. Yeah, I think he literally said, like, there's never been a conspiracy to, like, do anything <laughs> bad. Um, okay. There's never and been he, one. Yeah. I believe he was he was indicted in November 1991 on seven counts of perjury and false statements. Um, and then George H.W. Bush uh, came in and pardoned him uh, at the very end end of his presidency what was his name again his last... Do- dewey claridge oh right okay yes. yeah um and of course uh, also uh, uh defense secretary casper weinberger elliot abrams who was brought back to be like the venezuela czar by trump um and uh robert mcfarlane who we mentioned in the last episode and then cia employees alan fears and claire george um all of these people um were actually indicted and then george hw bush who i think maybe was uh, a little bit according to one whistleblower was the mastermind of this entire operation pardoned all of them on his way out and that basically shut the door on talking about iran contra um even though it it got he got a little shit for it by the press and oh i don't know that that seems problematic that he did that but he's probably just such a loyal guy you know that mm. he he didn't want to leave soldiers out on the field, so it's actually a testament of his character that he pardoned yeah. all these. Uh, and you know he's not president anymore. Bill Clinton's in now, so yeah, and bother, you know that's in the past. It's over. Uh huh. Yeah. And then people kind of wondered for a little while: um, Would Bill Clinton, you know, the new kid in town, would he maybe uh, follow up and you know get to the bottom of this whole Rand Contra thing and? I don't know. I guess he just got busy. He just didn't really have time for it. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't like maybe he was like critically involved in the whole operation going back because, of course, yeah. who was the governor in the early 1980s in Arkansas? That was none other than young hotshot William Jefferson Clinton. And um, there's a documentary that I think we both watched um Mm -hmm. it's kind of long but it's like a great old school vhs rip documentary you can find on youtube called the mina connection and it specifically goes into um all the activity in mina and specifically how clinton there are so many connections that clinton was like fully aware and read in on this whole operation and was kind of responsible for making sure that no local law enforcement kind of went sniffing around and uh the yeah there's so much there's so many drugs being brought in to the airport in mina and there were like these incredible cover-ups going on one of my favorite ones was that they uh they made up one of the planes like that was actually being used to transport cocaine that it was being used to transport porpoises yeah Uh, so there's like you know sus dolphin connection you know the dolphins come back you know he's got a but yeah uh, i think the the guy who was told that said uh that's a good one um (laughs) yeah and um and so yeah the the mina connection kind of compiles a lot of like local news investigative reports but also um focuses on this one whistleblower named terry reed who wrote a book 
called Compromised. Um, it is unfortunately, you can find it on archive.org, but you can only borrow it for uh, 30 minutes or something, or like an hour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I didn't have the energy to go and screenshot every single page. I think the, the documentary covers, I think, his allegations pretty well in any respect. Um, but he was a he was a kind of like CAA front businessman, a former military guy who got recruited into this MENA operation in the early 80s. And initially, I think as he says in the documentary, so th- this guy's a little like Barbara Honiger. He, he starts off by kind of prefacing that uh, he was fully on board with this Contra operation, even though Congress had forbade them from helping, and he supported the Contra struggle in Nicaragua to overthrow the Sandinistas, and if he had to do it all over again, he would still do it, because he supports those freedom fighters. So, keep him, keep that in mind as a little, like, grain of salt, but then, you know, this guy's kind of a, 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 a Dudley Do-Right, kind of, um you know, patriotic American kind of guy just with humble Midwestern values. And he thought that, you know, if there's a little bit of deception going on to send weapons down to these anti-communist freedom fighters, then, well, hey, I'm all for it. And he got recruited by a man who said he worked for the CIA, who called himself John Cathy. And he says later he found out that this guy's name was not John Cathy. It was Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who basically came to him maybe in like 1981 and said uh, the Reagan administration is drafting up a secret plan to destroy the Soviet Union, and we want you to be a part of it. And he explicitly pitched the Nicaraguan Contra operation as a you know critical node in this global secret plan to destroy communism and so the guy enthusiastically signed up and he was responsible for um i guess some kind of manufacturing equipment that maybe they needed for military equipment that they didn't want serial numbers on and things like that i think he might have been he was at the airport for a while and the the main honcho in the airport was a gentleman named barry seal who's another like really important character and oddly enough they're was a movie that came out a couple years ago starring none other than Tom Cruise called American Made, which is like the kind of big Hollywood telling of Barry Seal's story, which I was, I'd heard about this script for years. I think I even found the, the early draft of it somewhere online and read it. And actually, interestingly, it was originally called Mina, but I think uh, a little bit of political pressure on the studios <laughs> especially because this was being made in the run-up to the 2016 election, uh, got them to change it to American Made, which is much vaguer and uh, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But they shot this, I think they shot this literally like on location in Medellin, Colombia in maybe 2015 and 2016. Uh, there was a weird incident there where uh, there was like a plane crash and three individuals uh, died and some of them were like weird like technical advisors with like shady backgrounds and it's just very kind of weird that they got access to uh you know Pablo Escobar's old stomping grounds to shoot on location but um but Tom Cruise wanted to do it because he got to fly planes and Tom Cruise loves flying planes and like insisted on doing all his own flying mm-hmm. stunts and things like that um even though Barry Seal was like a very rotund almost like job of the hut kind of individual <laughs> uh he did not look like Tom Cruise but uh but nonetheless, um, 
you know, I, I, I went and saw this movie and the other weird, very weird thing about it, I think it bounced between a few different directors before Ron Howard was going to do it at one point, which probably would have totally sucked because um, he's just like, I don't know, boring, capable, mm-hmm. boring director. But then eventually uh, it was uh, Doug Lyman who got the job to do it. And most people probably know Doug Lyman from uh, being the director of Swingers in the 90s. Um, and then also uh, the movies like Go, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, kind of a spy theme. The Born Identity, another spy mm-hmm. theme. Um, An Edge of Tomorrow, um, which uh, actually not uh, not a bad movie. Um, I think like there's the one where he keeps dying. Yeah. yeah, where he keeps dying over and over yeah. again. And um, also, uh, like Dewey Claridge, a Brown alum. Um, and... Uh, but the interesting thing about Doug Lyman is that his father is Arthur Lawrence Lyman, who is a very powerful and famous attorney who was uh, probably maybe to older people is best known for being the chief counsel of the Senate's investigation into Iran-Contra in the 1980s. So he was almost like the, the Robert Mueller of like the Iran-Contra <laughs> Senate investigation hmm. and um, – you know he he led the investigation and it was his hearings that were televised that most people probably remember um mainly from the testimony of oliver north and admiral john poindexter and um and i guess uh, afterwards uh, arthur lyman reflected that uh, quote the public and the media tended to believe that congress somehow had lost and the witnesses won but iran contra wasn't about winning and losing an attempt had been made to undermine our constitution what the investigation accomplished was to bring all of it in all its details to the national attention in this sense i believe we all won um no i'm sorry <laughs> arthur we did not all win um so he's also uh i believe he he has like a a school at harvard or yale yeah um yale law school honored him in 1997 with the creation of the arthur lyman public interest fellowship and fund um for you know yale law graduates who want to work on welfare rights elder law indigent criminal defense immigration and all kinds of other uh progressive things and uh so I think uh, Arthur Lyman, kind of weird, like his dad was the chief counsel who ran this, and then his son ends up making a movie about the very thing that his dad's investigation failed to bring up and exposed to the American people. So I don't know, maybe there's kind of some weird family thing going on there, or maybe Doug Lyman is a trusted person to give this story to, because he wouldn't yeah. want to maybe overly ruin the reputation of his own father. Hmm. Um just kind of uh, intriguing but i will say the movie uh yeah, like father like son yeah yeah, yeah a little uh, bit a little bit and uh, so i think uh, the way he directed the uh the original movie of the whole thing or the ooh, father directed the original it movie. was i mean as uh, as i put in the, the outro music last episode you know this ain't really your life it ain't nothing but a movie um gil scott heron but uh yeah. it it really was kind of a movie and people the way that they were conducted allowed for um, for Oliver North to give this like 
indignant Boy Scout kind of performance where he kind of copped to doing a certain amount of things, but then said, you know, very like Jack Nicholson and Few Good Men of like, you can't handle the truth, sir, you know, Um, except it wasn't anything that they actually could get him on. So, I mean, I think they did maybe indict him for lying to Congress. I mean, Oliver North famously also shredded thousands of his documents. So a lot of the evidence was destroyed. They still got a lot of... um, things that were pretty incriminating but uh yeah so i mean the movie is actually i mean if you know absolutely nothing about the barry seal story it at least establishes the cia cocaine connection and it basically the movie does say that barry seal with the blessing of the cia was bringing in cocaine and bringing guns down to the contras and then bringing up cocaine and then, uh, you know, it doesn't really get into, like, where the cocaine went from there. Um, but it, it's assumed it was just going to, like, drug traffickers. And, and the the framing the movie has is basically, like, the, um, the CIA agent, his handler, kind of gives him, like, maps and, and times and stuff like that that the DEA is running surveillance flights. And basically gives him kind of the cheat codes to fly his planes in and out of the country without getting busted by the DEA. Um, which I actually do think is a kind of real dynamic as corrupt as the DEA is, as we'll see in, uh, certain whistleblowers like, uh, like Michael Levine, who was like a deep cover, uh, narcotics agent, um, on the, uh, kind of fantastic, I think, uh, Montel Williams episode about all this stuff mm-hmm. in the nineties. Um, I wonder he... if there's some kind of like subliminal, uh, intuition to like the QAnon idea of like Mueller being a white hat like in some way that's like a repress like a re- return of the repressed from like a rod contra like from you know the idea that this is in some way managed like it was all kind of for show maybe there's some kind of like you know a return of the repressed going on there like some kind of subliminal intuition to that idea that's like, how do you mean do you mean from the q people or the people that believe in russiagate uh, I mean, like, from the Q people, like, maybe there's, like, some kind of, like, subconscious, like, manifestation of, like, this happening in the past, uh, mm, you know, being uh, played out through the idea of, like, Mueller being, like, a quote-unquote white hat. Um, yeah. I don't yeah, know, and but, Mueller, yeah. I think, uh, I don't have it at my fingertips right now. Um, maybe, like, one day we could uh, do a little deeper dive into him but he was involved actually he was involved no he is connected to this shit okay because <laughs> robert mueller um let me just see if i can verify this it just popped into my my uh brain and he was uh assistant um he was assistant attorney general under who else george hw bush and um, he was the head of, of the Justice Department's criminal division in 1991, and he led the investigation into BCCI, which we mentioned last week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, probably the biggest, like, CA criminal money laundering bank at the time in, like, world history, um, And I think he did, I'm seeing here in the LA Times, that he indicted two ex-heads of it, um, including Saudi Arabian tycoon Gaith R. Faron, and uh, and I guess uh, two other uh, people in, when BCCI basically collapsed in the very late 80s, um, 
uh, he was kind of the man that was put on the job. Uh, yeah, he was Aga Hassan Abedi, who was actually the founder of BCCI, and Swale Nakfi, who is Abedi's aide and was also a BCCI president. But of course, given that this is the George Bush Justice Department, uh, so they, they copped the Pakistani guy who founded it and like two other dudes who were connected to him, but there was no investigation of kind of the uh, basically American connections or American intelligence connections. So mm-hmm. Mueller, you know, you could see maybe there's a yeah. synchronicity with the Trump investigation where he's the guy that you bring in when you don't want anybody to stumble on anything that's a hot potato that's too explosive and you want to manage a scandal so Mm -hmm. that and and if you're i think if you're good enough if you're good enough of a prosecutor and a bureaucratic operator that you can do just that where you throw a few people to the wolves and then you declare case closed where you know maybe some of these like lower trump people got indicted but then you don't end up with like the big the big get at the end of it and then everybody Mm -hmm. just kind of forgets about it so you know um he also was instrumental in uh things like uh like the pizza connection not related to pizzagate as far as we know but uh it was about it was it was a big investigation that kind of really went after i think it's i I don't know really the i haven't gotten to the bottom of it but i think it's interesting that the federal government finally like woke up one morning in the 80s and realized that the mafia actually existed the italian mafia Mm -hmm. and started going after them aggressively after it had ignored them for decades and decades and even worked with them and like the one kind of group of people that you do not see in the Iran-Contra drug scandal is the Cosa Nostra, the Italian mafia, which I think is mm-hmm. kind of interesting, right? Um, yeah. And I remember, I remember a, a a mutual friend of ours who is uh, who grew up on the East Coast and is Italian American. I remember him telling me this is anecdotal, but he told me a few years ago that his dad owned maybe I don't know an auto shop of some kind, a kind of small business, and um, that maybe his dad. It was in a heavily Italian area, and back then it was kind of totally normal that you might have some kind of uh, protection relationship with the local mafia families there. And uh, his dad was told by somebody who had mafia ties, um, uh, basically, this is probably years ago, but that what had happened with the drug trade was that at one point, the CIA wanted to move in more directly on the drug trade, maybe in the 70s or early 80s. And the mafia had, for whatever reason, declined to partner with them or didn't want them to cut in closer to the market. And basically there was some kind of disagreement between the CIA and the mafia and their chummy relationship started to break down. And then as a result of refusing to fully integrate with the CIA, the feds started aggressively going after the Italian mafia and, you know, has spent the last like 30 odd years basically prosecuting them. And of course, they're still around, but they have nothing compared to the influence that they have, you know, they had in the 1970s. And what you see now is the replacement of the Italian mafia with Central and South American drug traffickers with the drug cartels right Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so they are the main retailers, uh, importers, distributors of narcotics. And so I wonder to what extent, you know, this is kind of, uh, I, I know James Comey and Robert Mueller both worked on those Italian cases uh, in the 80s to like take out the mafia and got a lot of accolades for, you know, taking down the mobsters and all this stuff. But to what extent were they kind of clearing the, the playing field for a new kind of mafia, a more integrated mafia, to mm-hmm. take over the global drug trade that maybe it like to this day is still controlling the global dr- drug trade. Um, of course, the CIA was involved in drugs, like going back to the Kuomintang and the Golden Triangle, and uh, in Southeast Asia and things like that. Um, as Mike Levine said in the the, Mon- the Montel special, that there was a scheme to smuggle heroin back in the bodies of dead GIs during the Vietnam War by the CIA. Yeah. Um, and so this is always a thing, but like the cocaine connection, bringing cocaine from Central and South America, that is really like the innovation of the Iran-Contra enterprise. And it is kind of uh, stayed with us to this day. Yeah, I just wanted to mention um, back to Terry Reed, who uh, eventually was like working on this assignment, and then he had a few meetings. So he claims that he had like three meetings uh, with a bunch of people that he later learned were like head honchos, but he didn't know their identities at the time. Um, and they basically asked Terry Reed and his wife to move down to Mexico to open a CIA front company that would help them uh, smuggle weapons down to uh, like Costa Rica and Honduras and like the the staging grounds that would be given to the Contras. And he kind of, uh, he didn't really want to go, but then they kind of uh, prevailed upon him to do that. And the people in the meeting with him, uh, he lists about like five or six people. And um, the first one was John Cathy, who we mentioned was later exposed as Ollie North. There is a Japanese man named Aki Sawahata, who he still doesn't know the real identity of. Then there was a guy, and this guy's very important, named Max Gomez, who he didn't know at the time, a like Latino-American CA guy. And that guy uh, eventually was exposed as Felix Rodriguez, uh, Mr. I have Che Guevara's hand in my desk, and I'm best mm-hmm. friends with George H.W. Bush. And then there was a guy named uh, Black, uh, Bob Nash, who was the head of the Arkansas Development Agency that later got kind of wrapped up in all those, like, whitewater scandals with Bill Clinton and, like, misappropriating public funds and, like, weird manipulation of cattle futures and uh, and maybe some money laundering activity. Uh, 
it also connected to the Rose Law Firm where Hillary Clinton worked. Um, and then, you know, crucially, uh, at three of these meetings was Governor Bill Clinton. And so Clinton was like there and was kind of read in on this. And I can't forget to mention this actually surprised me. I did not know that this person was as deeply involved, but he, he said that there was another guy there who introduced himself as CIA agent Robert Johnson. And um, that guy's real identity is none other than Attorney General William Barr. Hmm. Yeah, and I knew that William Barr was the attorney general for Bush Sr., and that he helped to draft a lot of the legal briefings that kind of justified uh, the classification of state secrets. And basically, uh, also, I think he specifically wrote up the legal justification for pardoning all of the Iran-Contra people that Bush pardoned as he left office. So um, some people have brought that up in the modern day, that William Barr had kind of a role like covering up Iran-Contra. But I actually did not know that according to Terry Reid, uh, and, you know, th this these allegations were made in, like, 1992, so uh, you know, Bill Barr had been maybe the attorney general, but uh, it, it, it's not like today where he's like, ooh, the Trump villainous uh, AG that everyone wants to get. Like, the, he's a relatively obscure figure in the early 90s still. And he said, no, no, this guy was there. And he was, like, intimately involved in planning the MENA cocaine operation. And, um, and so, yeah, like, all these people were, uh, you know, according to him, were present. And then he went down to Mexico. And then at, at a certain point, he started getting, like, like, shipments of packages. And he thought that they were probably guns or military equipment so he'd pass them on but then like one day he like opened up one of the packages and it was like a ton of cocaine and he kind of freaked out and he he went and so max gomez aka felix rodriguez was his handler in mexico at the time and he went to him and said hey what's this man like i i don't know there's something going on here like it looks like it, sound, it sounds like he was a little naive like i think there might be drug traffickers like it, you know that we're working with like this is alarming we have to tell washington so they can stop it and max gomez i think his reaction was basically like you need to shut the fuck up about this and he basically said i don't want anything to do with this anymore this is like dangerous i don't want to get involved with my family and like you know mexican drug cartels which were on the rise at that point already had a reputation for like wiping out your whole family if you did something to, to oppose them so he wanted to get out and then he he and his wife went back to america and then the federal government started uh tainting them as drug traffickers and they started getting hounded by the feds and the dea because, like, I guess Felix Rodriguez and the Iran-Contra people, like, ceded false information to law enforcement that these guys were actually drug traffickers. And, of course, like, nobody knew that he had a covert CIA relationship. So he had to, like, go on the run. And, like, they thought they were going to get murdered and all these things. And then eventually he wrote this book in the early 90s. And uh, there was a pretty you know, classic in this kind of case. Uh, there was a kind of ridiculous, like, Time magazine um, smear job about Terry Reid in 1992 uh, by a guy named Richard Behar. I, I didn't check to see if he's still around. But he wrote this very, like, snarky... You could see it today, like, totally... Um, like, Terry Reid has made a lot of uh, salacious allegations about Governor Clinton, like, being involved with cocaine. The problem is that none of them are true. And then just went to, like, totally attack him. I think he sued Time Magazine for libel, and uh, I, I think he was able to settle with them. Um, 
and I guess made it out alive of this. But uh, but he you know he named a lot of these like very important individuals and he was the one who said that this was the brainchild of george hw bush he also said that arkansas was uh what or the, i guess the host of the mina connection said, described arkansas at that time as america's banana republic so like a rural underdeveloped cor- deeply corrupt state and they needed a crooked governor who was on the make and wanted to rise up and be somebody uh to basically keep an eye on all this stuff and make sure that none of it got out. And that was Bill Clinton. So Terry Reed got away, but the other guy involved in MENA, uh, Tom Cruise's, you know, guy, uh, Barry Seal, he did not make out so easily. And um, the the American-made movie kind of does, it does a little bit of a decent job, I guess, um, uh, plotting his downfall. Which was basically involved, um, he finally got arrested by the DEA, I think in maybe 1984, and then he was flipped into becoming a DEA informant um, to stay out of jail, and he was actually, uh, he was compelled, I think maybe personally by Oliver North, um, who does appear in the movie, um, he was he was basically forced as a condition of being an informant uh, to ensnare to, to set up a drug sting uh, that would implicate the Sandinistas as well as like members of like the Medellin cartel that he was working with. And uh, he had to install a, uh, a, a video camera or like a covert camera in one of his C-123s and um, kind of uh, convince somebody who is maybe adjacent to the Sandinistas to be involved in this and like catch them on camera. And then Reagan went on TV and published this picture, this like blurry picture from Barry Seal's airplane uh, and used it to say that it was proof that the Sandinistas were involved in, in all the cocaine trafficking that we were mm-hmm. seeing. So they very kind of predictably, they tried to use, because of course by 1984, 85, uh, cocaine was hitting the streets in big time and you know people were starting to see its effects in society. And Reagan, of course, was just you know the most staunch drug warrior. And so what what's a better narrative than mixing together this idea that the Cubans and the and the the Sandinistas the communists basically are the ones bringing in all these drugs to destabilize us and uh, and of course by doing that by publishing that photo without blurring out Barry Seal's face that basically burned him as a contact to everybody in the Pablo Escobar kind of cartel and all the Colombian drug lords that he had been working with, who then, you know, put a hit out on him. Um, And then he wasn't very happy about that. So he started to kind of, um, he started to get increasingly paranoid and freaked out. And he started running his mouth a little bit. And he started making a lot of phone calls. And it was at a point, I believe in 1986, where um, he had been arrested for something and then thrown back out. But he was forced to stay in a halfway house in Baton Rouge that was, like, not a good place to hide. And at the same time, he was flirting with the idea of becoming a whistleblower to save his own ass. And he specifically made some indirect threats to Vice President George H.W. Bush that if he didn't come in and help him and get him out of this mess he was in and protect him, that he was going to whistleblow 
on H.W. Bush's involvement. And then shortly thereafter, uh, in a parking lot in Baton Rouge, uh, a couple Colombian hitmen with MAC-10s rolled up on him and riddled him full of bullets and killed him. And that was the end of Barry Seal. And according to multiple accounts, I, I wasn't able to find the original source of this, but apparently in his pocket, uh, he had some scra- some notes uh, on paper that contained George Bush's personal phone number. According to whom? I don't Where know if it was according to... Uh, I would have to look up. It might have been Daniel Hopsicker who wrote a, a good and hard-to-find book called Barry and the Boys, which actually... so. Just a, I, I don't know. Maybe it was him uh, that uh, that made that original um, allegation. Um, I don't know if I just type in uh, Barry Seal George Bush phone number. Um, <laughs> oh, he is so okay. So on Spartacus Educational, I think it's kind of a, a uh, so- socialist. Like a trot, uh, yeah, it's like a trot, yeah, a hardcore think, trot thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see. Somebody, somebody found this record. Mm, let me let me just control F for Bush. Um, yeah. So it, it says here. Yeah. In March '84, Seal was indicted in Fort Lauderdale for smuggling quaaludes and laundering money. Um, former undercover narcotics investigator Stan Hughes told Daniel Hopsicker in Barry and the Boys that, quote, when Barry got busted on the Quaalude thing and I heard about there being government intervention to save his ass, I didn't believe it at first. But talk to any smuggler and they'll tell you. They can always buy their way out of a dope deal. In an attempt to avoid an expected 10-year sentence, Seal made contact with George H.W. Bush. He then appeared before a secret session of Bush's task force on drugs in Washington where he testified that the Sandinistas were directly involved in drug trafficking to the U.S. Seal claimed that the Medellin cartel had made a deal with the Sandinistas, awarding them cuts of drug profits in exchange for the use of an airfield in Managua as a transshipment for narcotics. The news was welcomed by President Ronald Reagan, who wanted to launch an all-out war in the Sandinistas. The DEA was now put under pressure to enlist SEAL as an undercover informant with a special emphasis on the, quote, Nicaraguan connection. So SEAL agreed to organize a sting operation where he managed to get a photograph of Pablo Escobar helping Nicaraguan soldiers load 1,200 kilos of cane on a C-120 three military cargo plane soon afterwards reagan went on television with the photograph to denounce the quote sandinistas as drug smugglers corrupting american youth um so as a result of that uh seal got his uh, sentence reduced from 10 years to six months probation and uh seal uh also offered to provide information to the dea implicating federal officials in the iran contra scandal this included richard benveniste a watergate prosecutor interesting who played a crucial role in the successful fight to secure the secret um richard nixon white house tapes uh benveniste represented both barry seal and bill clinton in the early 80s uh and benveniste also served as chief counsel to the senate whitewater committee however the authorities were not interested in this information in 80 in december 84 seal was arrested in louisiana after flying in a cargo of marijuana after paying a two hundred fifty thousand dollar bond seal was released to return to drug smuggling in return uh seal provided information that resulted in the u.s government obtaining 17 criminal convictions uh according to hopsicker seal told investigators between march 84 and august 85 he made a quarter million dollars smuggling up to 15,000 kilos of cocaine while working for the dea and another 575,000 when the dea let him keep the money from one shipment uh 
And uh, Barry Seal appeared before Judge Frank Palazzola in Baton Rouge in December 85, found guilty on two drug felony convictions. Seal was sentenced to six months supervised probation. A condition of the sentence was he had to spend every night at the Salvation Salvation Army halfway house on Baton Rouge's airline highway strip. Judge Palazzola barred him from carrying a gun or hiring armed guards. Barry Seal told his friends, quote, they made me a clay pigeon. Um... Barry Seal was asked by his close friend, Renee Martin, if he feared being killed by the Ochoa family. Barry Seal replied that he was not afraid of the Colombians because he had not implicated senior members of the organization. Seal was more worried about the contacts within the U.S. government. This view is supported by Louis Unglesby, Seal's lawyer, and he confirmed that the man Seal was willing to testify against was George H.W. Bush. And on February 19, 1986, Barry Seal returned, returned to his Salvation Army hostel at 6 p.m. As he parked his white Cadillac, he was approached by a man carrying a machine gun. Two quick bursts hit Seal's head and body. Uh, one of Seal's friends, Russ Eakin, observed the killing. Quote, I saw Barry get killed from the window of the Belmont Hotel coffee shop. The killers were both out of the car and one on either side, but I only saw one shoot because Barry saw it coming and just put his head down on the steering column. One of those or- originally arrested, Jose Renteria, took photographs of the dead seal in the car. When his camera was confiscated by an FBI agent in New Orleans airport, it was opened and the film inside exposed. While being interrogated, Renteria claimed that Jose Coutin was linked to Oliver North. However, this information was never produced in court as Renteria was not charged with the murder and was instead deported back to Colombia. Miguel Velez, Luis Quintero Cruz, and Bernardo Vasquez were found guilty of Barry Seal's murder and sentenced to life terms without parole. The official story was that Jorge Ochoa had murdered Seal in order to stop him testifying at his U.S. trial. Yet Ochoa never stood trial in the U.S., nor did Seal appear to be afraid of Ochoa. His concern was with George H.W. Bush and the CIA. For example... His secretary, Dandrasil, no relation, does not believe the Medellin cartel carried out the assassination. The CIA people, quote, the CIA people here allowed it to happen. He had a chart. He had dirt on everybody and anybody. Further evidence comes from D. Ferdinand. She told Daniel Hopsicker that her father, Al Caron, was a CIA paymaster and a colonel in army intelligence had been sent to Dallas to pay off Jack Ruby before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, she also <laughs> claimed, yeah, she also claimed that 33 years later, Carone performed the same function for the killing of Barry Seal. According to FAA investigator Rodney Stitch, Carone was Oliver North's bag man. Richard Sharpstein, defense, defense attorney for one of Seal's assassins, Miguel Velez, says, quote, All three Colombians who went on trial always said they were being directed after they got into this country on what to do and where to go by by, quote, an anonymous gringo, a U.S. military officer who they very quickly figured out was Oliver North. There's apparently another reason why George Bush wanted Seal dead. According to friends, Seal had a copy of a videotape of a 1985 DEA code cocaine sting which oh this is great which had netted george bush's two sons george and jeb picking up kilos of cocaine at a florida airport wow after his death his widow debbie seal received a 29 million dollar jeopardy assessment from the the irs it has been claimed this is a strategy to keep her from talking to reporters while defending herself from the irs charge she she discovered a frequently called phone number in barry's records when she called it she discovered it belonged to the defense intelligence agency she was told to quote never call it again later that day the daa phoned her back Debbie, you're young, you have a whole life ahead of you, and you have your kids to think about. Don't call anyone in Washington again. And then, of course, uh, this brings us to a SEAL-connected event that 
Uh, we wouldn't know about this if it wasn't for this. On October 5th, 1986, a Sandinista patrol in Nicaragua shot down a C-123K cargo plane that was supplying the Contras and was owned by uh, Barry Seal. It was called the Fat Lady. That night, Felix Rodriguez made a telephone call to the office of George H.W. Bush. He told Bush aide Samuel Watson that the C-123K aircraft had gone missing. Eugene Hassenfuss, an Air America veteran, survived the crash and told his captors that he thought the CIA was behind the operation. He also provided information that several Cuban Americans running the operation in El Salvador. The, the, this resulted in journalists being made uh, being able to identify Rafael Quintero, Luis Posada, and Felix Rodriguez as the Cuban Americans mentioned by Hassenfuss. It was the beginning of the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, the C-123 cargo plane that had been shot down had previously been owned by Barry Seal. Eugene Hassenfuss later claimed it was sheer coincidence that a plane once owned by SEAL was now part of a secret network led by Oliver North. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Barry SEAL got got. And, uh, and on October 1986, yeah, the reason that we know of this scandal is because uh, in, you know, maybe one of the greatest, uh, greatest contributions of the Sandinistas to uh, the understanding of real history, uh, a teenager with an SA-7 Soviet rocket launcher shot down the fat lady, the C-123, and uh, Eugene Hassenfuss bailed out with a parachute, and they arrested him and put him on TV to uh to expose this um and then that and at the end of 86 is when the media which had been ignoring any kind of rumors about iran contra nefarious activities couldn't ignore it anymore and like yeah. this plus the lebanese news article about iran and the weapons deals uh blew it up into the like arthur lyman led congressional investigation which like gobbled up a lot of news coverage in 1987 yeah i find kind of relatedly to some of the stuff about the sandinistas oh i just wanted to mention first uh you know on archive.org when it says a book can be borrowed for an hour you can actually, like, after your time runs up, you can just borrow it again. You know, it's not like mm. you can borrow it for one hour forever. Just, oh, like, good to know. I'm stupid. I, yeah. I never <laughs> no, tried I mean, it. I guess it's... it does seem, but, yeah, I don't know why they do that. But, yeah, you can just borrow again. Uh, but, anyway, yeah, relatedly to some of the, uh, you know, say, uh, the stuff with uh, with uh, Barry Seal and the kind of uh, plots to sort of pin drug traffic on the Sandinistas, I find, like, a lot of the sort of psyop work that was done on the American people around this to be very interesting. And, like, a lot of people who actually were, like, just straight up and, like, were referred to internally as, like, psyop specialists were brought in. Like, people like uh, Daniel Jacobowitz. Jacobowitz? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, mm -hmm. uh, who was a psyop, uh, psyop person, a background in psychological warfare uh you know and uh, as he was ascribed to the iran contra committee by jonathan miller um mm -hmm. i i don't know if you mentioned uh walter raymond jr yeah but so. yeah he was like kind of uh the point person for that uh you know uh with um william casey and he kind of like and also otto reich uh, oh yeah Reich. i've heard yeah. that name before yeah yeah yeah. well you might have heard it a couple times because of course there's a famous ss officer Otto reich um uh, or reich, uh, uh but 
uh, this guy is apparently a, uh, a son of a Cuban Catholic mother and an Austrian Jewish father born I in I see, Cuba. born in Havana, Cuba in 1945. Yeah, yeah well, uh, you know, there's enough to indict this guy without kind of speculating, but uh-huh. uh, we'll just take it on faith that uh, he's Jewish and that, you know, uh, as it says in the Wikipedia article, his father was just very concerned uh, when Castro took power, you know, remembering nazi germany you know uh, come on right. um, yeah yeah <laughs> so, kicking out yeah. kicking out meyer lansky's casinos is another another holocaust uh yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> anyway uh yeah but yeah. of course like this guy was like uh, you know i think that he ended up being like indicted or at least like obviously uh found sort of guilty for like you know appropriating like charitable funds to get weapons and using like prohibited uh propaganda oh i see yeah he Um, was the head of the office of public diplomacy the opd starting uh he helped establish it in 1983 which is like a big disinformation office yeah uh, all about supporting the contras a lot of these psyop people were like brought in like people who had done like psyops abroad were brought in under him and under uh walter raymond to uh, kind of like coordinate the the psyop campaign on the American people to make the the you know Sandinistas seem guilty even of drug trafficking and uh, the Contras seem like you know uh, like uh, the way they phrase it actually uh, is uh, like um, Raymond said in a memo uh, to summarize his entire sort of propaganda campaign in the case of Nika uh, you know Nicaragua concentrate on gluing black hats on the sandinistas and white hats on uno uh united Nicaragua. white hats yeah yeah yeah. Um, classic language right 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 and uh yeah so they actually like had planned to uh you know have this sort of like fake uh bust happen where Mm -hmm. um well jose blandon uh, testified before this is according to wapo a Senate mm-hmm. Foreign Relations panel in 1986 uh, that Pan- uh, Panama's General uh, Noriega said that he had planned with North to plan a shipment of Eastern Bloc weapons in El Salvador, where it was to be intercepted as the long-missing proof of Sandinista gun-running to Salvadoran guerrillas. The, quote, proof was to be discovered right before a key congressional vote resuming contra-military aid. But Blandon mm-hmm. said the plan went awry when the general, angered by U.S. press disclosures about his drug trafficking, seized the ship carrying the weapons. So that was in 1986, you know, so wow. makes sense. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there's all sorts of, like, stuff. And it was just straight up, like, you know, very deliberate, very kind of unprecedented attempt to, like, manipulate the American people through the same techniques they had honed abroad. Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah. We, yeah, we bring that up time and again, how basically like these covert operations overseas are almost like like laboratories or proving grounds for tactics that they later bring back to sort of aim at like a domestic American audience. Uh, yeah, like definitely is, in terms of PSYOP and propaganda. This is a great quote from the same person. Um, and, uh, you know, he was then national security advisor, uh, William Clark. Uh, mm-hmm. was sent a memo by Walter Raymond, uh, and he said that we need this new art form of PSYOP in, in foreign policy. Um, and he said, it is essential that a serious and deep commitment of talent and time be dedicated to this, he argued. Uh, programs such as Central America, European Strategic Debate, Yellow Rain, and even Afghanistan have fa- foundered by a failure to orchestrate sufficient resources and forces for these efforts. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so and yeah, we will see later on. There. I mean, like like Rambo three is a fantastic example that is literally dedicated to like the brave Mujahideen fighters in the original. The title card at the end of Rambo three, yeah, um, of yeah. and and then after nine eleven, it was just changed to like the brave people of Afghanistan. <laughs> right yes <laughs> yeah um, yeah but but that kind of, and i mean even like rocky four stallone i mean he was a real yeah. um vector in hollywood for this kind of stuff but they were it was a full court press on all, the entire media um and also like i i had mentioned um maybe in like the first or second episode but i think it's kind of it's relevant here that i think it was in 1985 that uh abc news uh was bought out by a shadowy like private equity company called capital cities um and one of the principal like shareholders of capital cities um was william j casey and he was mad at abc because in 1984 they had published some like uh, i think like 2020 investigative reports about the contra war in nicaragua that were that that raised questions about u.s covert support and like u.s foreign policy and were like negative about the contras and he was so pissed off and the mainstream news co- at the fake news if you will yes. that um a company that he was intimately connected to bought abc news outright and then that basically it's like abc wasn't not that they were great before that but like abc was kind of capital cities from that point and then that entity merged with disney in the 90s so you see mm-hmm. like they really went far to get literal like board like shareholder control over some of these um uh news organizations and then also i see here that reich met with a dozen npr reporters in the 80s um about their allegedly biased nicaragua coverage uh and reich according to foreign affairs correspondent bill busenberg reich bragged that he had made similar visits to other unnamed newspapers and major television networks reich said that he had gotten others to change some of the reporters in the field and uh, and Busenberg told uh, someone in a 1987 interview that he viewed uh, Reich's comments as quote a calculated attempt to intimidate. So um, yeah, he also uh, the OPD helped circulate a specious story in 1985 suggesting that some U.S. reporters received sexual favors from Sandinista provided prostitutes <laughs> in return wow. for favorable coverage. Um, and he said, it isn't only women, Reich told New York Magazine. For gay journalists, they would procure men. Okay, um, that is that is especially interesting because we don't have enough time to talk about it today. But when we finally do an episode on, like, the Franklin Ring and um, and even the, uh, the Henry Vinson sort of gay sex ring that was in Washington that was connected to Craig Spence, who was connected to Larry King, and all these people were in, like, the very close orbit of Vice President Bush's office in the late 80s, that I think um, this is yet another case of projection of <laughs> accusing, like, the communists uh, or the liberals of doing yeah. exactly what you are doing, um, which mm-hmm. is probably providing sexual favors to journalists to entrap them and ensure that they only get positive coverage. As far as I know, uh, that was not a tactic of the Sandinistas. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, and uh, it, it makes yeah. a lot more sense that these cocaine cartels were using prostitutes to bribe people, um, which many, many, you know, whistleblowers have said is, it's, you know, yeah, standard operating procedure. 
because you do hear that come up a lot like as, even among people who are like involved in the drug world like you know you mentioned the idea like uh, i feel like a lot of uh like rappers from this time will circulate that idea like when we do uh our episode kind of on memphis horrorcore which will be like mm-hmm. our next public one i guess mm-hmm. uh, uh i think koopsta nika is now like a big uh you know uh proponent of that idea that people are like you know forced to you know, have these sort of liaisons in order to like make it so that they can later be kind of blackmailed or, or whatever it's oh in the music like industry kind of circulated yeah i've uh, I definitely heard that i've heard various rappers kind of talk almost in a kind of like illuminati adjacent way yeah that, um like a lot of thing about like maybe a lot of like these hard gangster rappers have to do like gay stuff to like basically blackmail them and yeah uh, well, it's interesting. a lot of whispers of like this, about that kind of thing yeah this thing where like kind of starts with drugs and then well you know the typical kind of story of this stuff where like you know i remember the, like the Polamine like rumors and things around oh, around yeah, that you know yeah. like uh so i feel like there's a connection between like that sort of conspiracy theory and the drug one that kind of has bubbled up um from you know various various corners so yeah you know definitely and i mean the franklin scandal is probably the best like actual substantiated like proof of something like that so uh-huh. it's interesting. Yeah. yeah we have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. Aren't you advocating the overthrow of the present government? Not if the present government would turn around and say, uh, all right, if they'd say, uncle, uh, like maybe before we go fully into like the LA connection and the dark Alliance and like CA crack and stuff. Um, did you get a chance to watch any of the last narc on Netflix? I didn't watch any of it. No. Okay. That's fine. I, yeah, I, I had I watched, watched it a month or two. Uh, it, it's like, it is interesting and it always perplexes me why like Amazon is producing such uh, documentaries uh, given their like close ties to the government and the, like just i don't know these streamers like they they do these like kind of cia like expose kind of documentaries but i will say that like it's it's pretty good it's worth watching somebody in the uh awara frequency discord chat like brought up if we had uh checked it mm-hmm. out yet and i think for anybody's like seeking a little more um of like a kind of you know personal testimony about 
uh, what happened in Iran Contra. Just to go over it like real quickly. Um, so it's uh, it, it's like a mini series that covers um, a particular story that was kind of a big scandal in the '80s, which was like the tor- the abduction, torture, and murder of a DEA agent named uh, Enrique Kiki Camarena. And um, actually, like, Michael Levine, the DEA guy who went on Montel, was, like, friends with Kiki Camarena and wrote about it in, I think, a couple of his books. Like, this was a radicalizing event for him because, like, his friend got kidnapped, uh, presumably by the Guadalajara cartel. And this is in Guadalajara, Mexico, um, in the mid-'80s. And then his, like, body was found, uh, like, horribly tortured and basically, like, beaten to death uh, later on. And it caused, like, a minor international incident uh, between the U.S. and Mexico in the late 80s, but then was ultimately completely basically covered up. And uh, the main subject uh, of this is, like, um, a kind of very colorful, like, older Mexican-American retired DEA narc named Hector Boreas. And he was also, I think, down in Guadalajara in the 80s and uh, was friends with Kiki Camarena and uh, was, you know, very, like, disturbed and, you know, uh, outraged by, like, this kidnapping and murder thing and naturally, like, wanted to uh, get to the bottom of it and eventually was actually the DEA did appoint him to be, like, the head of the investigation. And this was, like, a really true, you know, really personal case for him. Um, But as he started to dig into it deeper, he found that there were all these nefarious connections and there was this lurking influence of the CIA that was stonewalling his ability to kind of figure out what actually happened. And to make a long story short, I mean, it's like a five-hour series, but what what they can kind of stitch together today is that basically um, Kiki Camarena was targeted because he was a kind of not-dirty DEA narc um, who actually wanted to deal a heavy blow to the Guadalajara cartel, which was at the time like one of the first big Mexican drug cartels that rose to power in the 80s and was basically kind of, um, this is when Mexico became a critical transshipment point for cocaine that was coming up from Colombia and Bolivia and Peru from like right-wing dictatorship, uh, Nazi-associated regimes there. I might add. And then the the Mexican and then, you know, coming through like people like the Contras in Central America. And then when it gets to Mexico, they would kind of deal with like getting it up to the U.S. border and getting it into the U.S. And so uh, Kiki Camarena stumbled upon something that he, I guess, should not have stumbled upon, which was and this is very funny. He discovered a huge marijuana ranch called Rancho Buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, which uh, is like no for any you know not, not saying there's a buffalo ja connection but still uh it's wow, hard not yeah, to I feel it think of that huh. yeah yeah uh, i mean i immediately thought of it so <laughs> um but basically like he he discovered this ranch and then he got the mexican army to go raid it and then they burned the entire crop of this like vast marijuana farm which uh, allegedly cost the cartel like billions of dollars in revenue this is one of like their biggest marijuana farms and the three heads of the cartel miguel gallardo ernesto carrillo and rafael quintero 
who were like some really like psycho uh they interview a lot of like former corrupt cops who were like literally guards for like the cartel bosses because they go into just how ridiculously corrupt even back then the uh, mexican military and law enforcement were and there's a specific agency called dfs which was literally created by the cia after you know i think in the either the 50s or 60s that was kind of an internal security kind of uh, Gestapo that um, was, you know, involved in all kinds of like anti-communist suppression activities and disappearing, you know, uh, journalists and people like that. And uh, basically the, the, the heads of the cartel were outraged. And I think the reason they were outraged is because they were all working with the CIA and the CIA had assured them that they were going to be protected from any big kind of raids or operations against them. So the fact that this DA office, which had people in it that were on the payroll of the cartel and people that probably were aware of the CIA thing, they basically said, you know, what the fuck? Something needs to be done about this guy because he's he just cost us like almost a billion dollars and so then shortly after doing that raid Camarena was abducted off the streets one day he was taken and he was tortured and the reason he was tortured was because it's like he had stumbled into a, an area that he wasn't supposed to stumble into and eventually this Cuban-American guy shows up um, that is heard on the videotapes they procure or the audio tapes they procured of his interrogation. And it's this mysterious Cuban American operative named Max Gomez, who we eventually learn is, yes, Felix Rodriguez, George H.W. Bush's best friend. And he is he shows up a couple days into the, like the torturing and the interrogating, and is basically like they think he knows something that he actually didn't know. Kiki Camarena actually was like totally oblivious to like the CIA connection. So uh, Rodriguez starts interrogating him about, like, what do you know about the Contras? Like, what do you know about the CIA? What do you know about these operations, the, you know, the, the, these different operations going on? Like, what are you, who are you working for in Washington that is trying to disrupt what we're doing? And thought that there had, there had to be somebody behind him. And, you know, he just keeps saying, like, no, senor, like, no, like, I don't know anything. Like, I, I, like, I'm just like a, a narc. Like I don't, and, and Rodriguez did not believe him. And so what they kept doing is like torturing him until he passed out and then injecting him with amphetamines to wake him back up so they could torture him more and make him talk. Wow. And they just did this for like days and days and days. And then finally, like his body like gave up and, uh, I don't think they like, you know, shot him or whatever, but he just like died, um, from like yeah, the extremity of like the torture. Good, that, yeah, it could happen from what you described. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, shooting needing to happen. Yeah, it, it was some like kind of brutal, but like sophisticated, like honestly, like Phoenix program, which Felix Rodriguez was heavily involved in, and um, and brought a lot of lessons of the Phoenix program to Central America in you know uh teaching the contras and the other uh you know security force like these fascist security forces that were in bed with the cia teaching them all the most horrible kind of um counterinsurgency techniques imaginable and then in the late 80s like they're uh they brought in they managed to actually arrest like the doctor who was there who was like giving him injections the whole time and then they brought him they, they actually 
the DEA like allowed what's his name Hector Barreas, the uh, the sort of quote good guy uh, DEA narc to literally kidnap this doctor and bring him to America, which caused another kind of international incident. But then it was like you know America is more powerful, so we were like fuck off, like we're gonna do what we want. And then they brought him into trial, and then to to Barreas's uh, shock, um, they the the. The defense brought in uh, Kiki Camarena's DEA supervisor from Guadalajara and basically um, kind of asked him about this doctor who was like a rich guy. And he I think he might have been related to one of the cartel heads and stuff. And uh, this guy just totally this DEA supervisor lied out of his ass and basically said that, like, there's no way that this guy would have anything to do with cartels. He's clean. He's totally innocent. And there's nothing wrong with him at all. And that, like, the fact that Kiki Camarena's own supervisor, like, testified on behalf of the accused kind of collapsed the credibility of the whole case. And the um, and, and the doctor got out and, like, was delivered back to Mexico. And then, and then the government started investigating Hector Barreas for his, like, rogue activities and, like, kidnapping an agent, even though he was told to go kidnap the guy. And he uh, – his career was kind of, like – disrupted by that and sidelined and like all the blame was put on him for doing this problematic thing and you know taking somebody and like violent and they even use this kind of like sentimental propaganda narrative of like this poor doctor like this mexican man who was just cruelly abducted by these american agents and like all this kind of bullshit and um and basically uh he wanted to keep looking into the case and like get to the bottom of it. And one day he like got a visit from like a CIA guy uh, who sat him down and was like, you have a nice family, right? Just like Barry Seal's wife. Like mm-hmm. you have a nice family. You're still pretty young. Uh, you're a good agent. You know, you could have a long, nice career ahead of you or not. Um, because uh, if you keep looking into this, we're going to hand you over to the Mexicans because you cr- you committed a felony in Mexico by kidnapping that guy. And we all know, given what you've done to the cartels, you're not going to last like a week in Mexican prison. And the guy was like, I knew he was 100% fucking right. Like I would be fucking murdered immediately in Mexican jail. And says basically like, you need to stop looking into this and shut up and just enjoy your life and enjoy your government job. And then everything will be fine. And it was at that point where he was, like, absolutely disgusted. I think he retired from the DA after that um, and then, I guess, decided to speak in, like, this documentary because he's, like, an old, tortured. Um, honestly, some of the, the, the police, the Mexican police officers who worked for the car, like, there's one guy in it who literally looks like he's, like, struggling with, like, demonic possession. Um Wow. And uh, he's wearing a bulletproof vest the entire time during the interviews, like in his own home. Wow, he's like I fully do armed. Want to watch this now. Yeah, no, it's uh, worth I checking not out. Doing so. It's uh, worth checking out because he just like does these like he'll like slam his hands on on, on like the the table and like look around wildly like a, like a cartoon character. And then <laughs> like like when he just asks him any kind of question, he's like so haunted by like the horrible like satanic things that he was like involved in and like being a dirty cop 
cop like the other some of the other cops are a little more like stone-hearted about it but this one guy in particular is like completely on the brink of like madness because of like recalling <laughs> these things and um it, it's just the you know so i mean the, there you there felix rodriguez goes again um and this guy is like you know so tight with george hw bush and like literally like and i guess was maybe either a top operative or maybe a station chief in mexico in the 80s because terry reed it it it, it so it totally syncs up with terry reed saying that max gomez was going to be his cia handler in mexico so uh they don't even bring that up in the last narc but that's like a, a kind of a corroboration that you know uh rodriguez was kind of based out of mexico at that time and was managing all of this like drug pipeline business um that was going up into the united states so i i would say check it out if, if anybody yeah. has time um You're it's definitely a uh, an expressive you know. uh it's an evocative telling and pretty well like produced like i'm surprised that um i mean a lot of the subjects still seem terrified to talk about it and are kind of like well like at one point the main hector barayas like pulls out his like 357 magnum and he's like you think i'm you think i think i'm safe like man like no like i carry a gun with me everywhere i go like he still thinks that like one day like some cartel cia backed people are just gonna roll up on him and like take him out you know for talking but he doesn't give a shit he's old and like depressed and doesn't give a shit anymore mr vice president thank you for being with us tonight Donald Gregg still serves as your trusted advisor. He was deeply involved in running arms for the Contras, and he didn't inform you. Now, when President Reagan's trusted advisor, Admiral Poindexter, failed to inform him, the president fired him. Why is Mr. Gregg still inside the White House and still a trusted advisor? Because I have confidence in him, and because this matter, Dan, as you well know, and your editors know, has been looked at by the $10 million study by the Senate and the House, it's been looked at by the Tower Commission. The Rodriguez testimony that you put on here, I just think it's outrageous because he was totally vindicated, swore under oath that he never talked to me about the Contras. And yet this report you're making, which you told me or your people did, you have a Mr. Cohen that works for you, was gonna be a political profile. Now, if this is a political profile for an election, uh, I have a very different opinion as to what one should be. But Don Gregg works for me because I don't think he's done anything wrong. And I think if he had this exhaustive examination that went into, that was gone into by the Senate and by the House, would have showed it. And you've impugned the, uh, my integrity by suggesting with one of your little boards here that I didn't tell the truth about what, what uh, Felix Rodriguez. You didn't accuse me of it. But you made that suggestion, and other people in the meeting, including Mr. Nick Brady, and he has said that my version is correct. And so I find this to be a rehash and a little bit, if you'll excuse me, a misrepresentation on the part of CBS who said you're doing political profiles on all the candidates, and then you come up with something that has been exhaustively looked into. Mr. Vice President, what we agreed to or didn't agree to, I think you will agree for the moment, can be dealt with in another way. Let's talk about the record. You say that we've Let's misrepresented your record. record. Let's talk about the record. If we've yeah. misrepresented your record in any way, here's a chance to set it straight. Right. Now, I set it straight on one count because you implied from that uh, little thing, I, I have a little monitor sitting on the side here, that I didn't tell the truth. Now, this has all been looked into. Where, where did we imply that, Mr. Vice President? Well, just here on this board where you had the idea that Bush says that he uh, didn't tell, uh, uh, didn't tell, uh, the concert, didn't hear about the contra supply from Felix Rodriguez. Mr. Felix Vice Rodriguez testified under oath. 
He has been public, and you could have at least run a little picture of him saying that I never told the vice president about the contract. Okay, so now we've, we've talked about Nina, and we've talked about some things that happened uh, in Mexico, south of the border, etc. But now, um, maybe we can, we can focus on, like... The specific uh, Los Angeles Contra crack connection uh, that centered around Freeway Ricky Ross, who is one of the most successful local cocaine dealers in 1980s Los Angeles, but who was supplied by a shadowy Nicaraguan businessman named Danilo Blendon, who it later was exposed was working as a kind of contract agent for the CIA specifically to do with <clears throat> providing financial and logistical support for the uh, the Contras in Nicaragua um, and these like these allegations did come out in the news in the 90s uh, largely as a result of the efforts of a San Jose Mercury news reporter named Gary Webb who started a series that he called Dark Alliance um, in 1996, where he got a tip onto this like Blandone connection. And the result of his investigations uh, laid out a pretty mm, convincing collection of evidence that the CIA was like not only like indirectly like connected to the flood of cocaine into the United States throughout the 80s, but was like actively aware of it and protected its assets who were doing it from getting busted by like local law enforcement and the DEA. And even that led to uh, certain allegations that perhaps the CIA or the US government or the Reagan administration deliberately uh, took this cocaine product and sold it in urban black neighborhoods and did that um, even though maybe the CIA did not explicitly invent crack. Um, I think, you know, Rick Ross has always claimed that that was like a a sort of business innovation of his uh, just because people, you know, people wanted to smoke it, but uh, it was kind of cumbersome to like freebase cocaine and kind of, you know, clumsy and messy. And it was almost like a McDonald's style innovation of like, well, if we cook up this cocaine with baking soda, we can cook it up into this like highly potent little crack rock. And then it's like the, the original name for it was Ready Rock that basically you come up and buy it mm-hmm. and like smoke it right away. And this this was ex- incredibly popular. And also, crucially, what it allowed people to do is it took cocaine which, like, as we mentioned up to this point, was kind of a drug more favored by rich people and middle-class people that had some money to spend because it was quite expensive. I remember reading one book about Hollywood in the 1970s that said that cocaine was the equivalent of, like, 400 a gram or something like that. And I think that was in 1970s dollars, which is kind of mind-boggling compared to, like, yeah. how, how cheap it is today. But but basically, you know, if you wanted to expand the market for cocaine use, um, one, uh, maybe the, the two best ways to do it would be, one, increase the addictiveness of it. Because cocaine is addictive, but it's nowhere near as addictive as crack. And two... Um, create a version of it that is cheap enough that people without a lot of money can buy it and get you know addicted to it and uh, 
that is exactly what happened starting in uh, I think 1982 or 1983 when Ricky Ross started making this crack and it was selling like hotcakes he was making 10 he was making over 10 million dollars a week by his own estimation by the uh, the kind of early 80s and eventually started to sell to street gangs primarily the Bloods and the Crips who like in his estimation, he just wanted everybody to get in on this amazing like financial opportunity <laughs> that he was doing. Yeah. He comes off. He's a very interesting figure. Um, like I said, I rewatched the, the documentary Freeway Crack in the System from like nine years ago. And uh, he, he does come off as this oddly, I mean, especially in a story so full of like evil characters. He's like this one guy that you can kind of has has a bit of humanity and like innocence to him in that he it's interesting. Yeah. He, yeah. Very, very interesting. Like, I wonder, yeah, one wonders, like, the sort of process behind his sort of rise to that position, the choice of, of him. Yeah, he's someone who's kind of managed to launder this whole thing into a whole, like, persona, a whole kind of career in a way. Yeah, yeah. Even though it, it, it gets tough because he was also somebody that got like the whole yes, ton of bricks in, in a kind of yeah. very potent metaphor for what the entire rate, like this whole 80s drug uh, operation was. It's like, mm-hmm. the of course, like the young black man was the one who got sentenced to life in prison and got like the full force of the law thrown at him, though he was yeah. able to get his life sentence overturned on a technicality and ended up getting out of jail after like 15 years. <clears throat> but basically, yeah, he you know, uh, suffered more than a lot of the people who were more involved and probably guilty of worse. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, famously, his name was appropriated by the yeah. I always thought very mediocre Florida rapper Rick Ross. <laughs> who used to be a uh, corrections officer and a parole officer, so literally a cop, um, not a drug dealer, but who stole his name and then built this, like, ridiculous image as, like, the South Florida drug kingpin. And Ricky Ross actually sued him when he got out of jail for, like, $10 million and half of his royalties for identity theft, basically. Um, And quite cruelly... It shows this in the documentary. The judge in L.A. uh, threw out his suit on the technicality that the statute of limitations had expired because it was, like, too long from the time that Rick Ross adopted that name and then ordered Rick Ross, uh, the freeway Rick, to pay all the legal fees of Rick Ross, which were, like, half a million dollars, and then he had to sell his mother's house in South Central to, like, cover the legal fee. Yeah, so, like, really, this is probably around, like, 2010, 2011. And uh, so, yeah, they just did him dirty like that again. Um, and uh, wow, it, it's yeah, a little, yeah, I know he's gone on like a different podcast and like interviews uh, over the years and stuff. And I think he's still kind of around there. I don't know what he's doing nowadays, but he does come off as somebody who is genuinely like naive, ambitious, greedy and and enterprising, extremely enterprising. And just sort of a, it, it, when he got into cocaine, it was still like this party drug. So maybe a little more what you might think of like ecstasy today, where it's not like it's not really looked at as like super super addictive. Of course, you could develop a problem with it, like you could with anything. But it seemed kind of like it was. He said, "I wasn't seeing you know like crack mamas or you know yeah, yeah, yeah. kids doing it. It didn't seem like I was destroying my community at first, and then crack. Right. There were no coke mamas, or you know there weren't any coke 
you know, you didn't see any Coke babies, you know, although yes. obviously there can be. Uh, yeah. And there were but, later on. But uh, yeah. but and then he he developed this kind of idea. And then he around the same time that he I think shortly at, or shortly before he developed this kind of idea of, of like Ready Rock, he had somehow come into contact with this like Nicaraguan uh, Danilo Blandone, who kind of took Freeway Rick under his wing and also basically promised him like an unlimited supply of coke and basically said like as much as you can sell i can provide and they developed a very close working relationship and like he became uh danilo blendo and became the supplier of freeway rick and so crack began to around 83 84 started to explode onto the streets of south la and um within a couple years uh the basically started to spread probably i don't know maybe allegedly via the bloods and the crips who had contacts obviously in other cities around the country it started to spread to places like detroit cincinnati st louis miami new york um you know and so on and so on and usually it was primarily spreading in more low-income majority black neighborhoods and by about 1986 87 it blew up into what we now would all call like the crack epidemic but was actually very consciously whipped up in the media as this terrifying frenzy of this horrible new drug that was like escalating everything awful about the scourge of drugs in america and it and it was spun in a way that it fit incredibly neatly into the Reagan Bush administration's agenda of being like tough on crime and supporting um, harsher criminal justice penalties, supporting the drug war, which I think we mentioned that George H.W. Bush was literally like the chair of like the presidential task force on combating drugs, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious, you know? So he was like literally controlling both ends of it. Like talk about a sinister, talk about a sinister dialectic. Yeah, uh, yeah, very sinister dialectic. I just I do wonder about the persona like the fact that there was Rick Ross the rapper like the persona of Rick Ross is so appealing like as a folk hero mm-hmm. and it was still like it coincided with that time where this like became in a way like cool mm-hmm. across the board and there's also that dimension of it 
and I don't know. It's I, it is fascinating, I and yeah, I think like, we'll, we'll, I think we can probably like devote a lot of time in our like a Memphis uh, horror core yeah, you know, rap episode yeah, to the idea there. to like to what because it is. I was listening to NWA this morning and just to get mm-hmm. ready to get hyped for like this episode, and I was listening to like Dope Man and some Easy E stuff. And it is kind of, like, fascinating to witness, like, the transformation of this, like, new genre, hip-hop. Um, and and it, 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 it's so hard because, like, I have kind of an attachment to, like, N.W.A. from being, like, you know, in middle school and getting, like, you know, the cassette tape and, like, listening to all these songs and being kind of shocked and, like, titillated by these narratives of, like, life on the streets of, like, South Central and the kind of the shocking violence the prevalence of drugs and like the aggressiveness of everything and it's like on the one hand they i think often today you would see people describe that as almost a form of like artistic journalism right Mm -hmm. like it was speaking to what was really going on and was absolutely going on uh on the streets of where these kids were growing up at the time but then i maybe you have to separate that a little bit from the creation of of the art itself and then it becoming a mass promoted phenomenon in culture uh that became kind of like the most dominant subgenre of rap was this stuff that glorified drug dealing and um, i mean yeah, there's two sides to it. I mean, something you can... Again, we're going to do an episode on, uh, like, the specific sort of subgenre of horrorcore rap in Memphis, like, coming up soon. But, like, you know, something like Norwegian black metal that is, like, you know, like, burn a church, like, kill every Christian, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, people... You can make the same excuses, like, for that, but, like, ultimately... Well, you know, there's, there's two sides to it. Like, you know, this is kind of the debate and like the thing that we deal with a lot of the time like on the show where it's this uh you know and there's different elements to it depending on like the different social context of course but it's the you know the line between like this idea of free expression like everyone's free to worship baphomet you know like uh etc versus like okay well can we have a conversation about like you know what this uh might in some way bring about you know know, exactly uh, so it's yeah there's it's obviously like a very like thorny territory and in a way like yeah there's observation uh you know and there's sort of response and there's like you know like you said the journalistic aspect of it and then there's the way that those narratives can kind of perpetuate and shape certain realities i mean and you could say the same thing about a song like smuggler's blues uh-huh. uh you Which know like you may have already heard before but you're definitely there, hearing it in this episode there's, <laughs> there's a mystique um you know that uh comes to the the figure the smuggler's blues narrator you know uh-huh. like he's cool yeah. he's sexy he's appealing you know like uh it's so, the lure of easy money and it's got a very strong yeah. appeal he's, yeah yeah he's, he's the all-nighter you know he is he's the, the all-nighter all-nighter. yeah yeah exactly so there's yeah, for sure. There's like that many, song. Like, I feel, you know, not to get sidetracked, um, but I do feel uh, maybe I will have played that interlude already. But the part where uh, he says, uh, you know, they bring it to Miami, sell it in L.A., they hide it up in Telluride. I'm uh, and me, it sounds like he says, and Mina's here to stay. And it actually like mm-hmm. it blew my socks off when I first heard the song like a year and a half ago, um, going through kind of like an Eagles binge. And I, I was like, whoa, did like, did, did 
Glenn Fry just exposed the Mina operation in 1984 in like one of his songs about cocaine smuggling. And then I looked at the lyrics and it's like, he's supposedly saying, I mean, it's here to stay. It's when he's like exhaustedly like testifying to like the the drug cops that caught him. And he's like explaining like, listen, buddy, like you don't understand, like, you know, from the office of the president right down to me and you. It, you know, it's uh, yeah. Well, I it, find that phenomenon fascinating of like mishearing. Like, what does getting something wrong? You know, what does mishearing get right in a way? You know, what uh-huh. are mistakes? Like, it's like kind of like again, you know, reference to another episode, S.K. Bain and the Black Christmas thing. Like, completely wrong. Like, and a lot of the things he says, like you could say, like especially related to that, are like totally out there and like based on nothing. But is there something to it in a way? Like you mm-hmm. know, there's something to like some of these things that are paranoid like grasping at uh you know nothing that are largely like yeah is there something going on with with error and yeah mishearing in particular i have many things like that where i've heard something wrong or i prefer my misheard lyrics or something like yeah, that. yeah yeah i've so, had that, yeah, that feeling but, before um yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh <clears throat> but yes. but to get back to just to get back to crack a little bit um yeah I'm going to read a little bit from this article from the uh, Covert Action Information Bulletin from 1987, which I found on the CIA's website, but is a really good, we'll link it, um, it's a really good, um, I think, compendium of articles about the history of, like, CIA drug trafficking, going back to, you know, Burma and the Golden Triangle and uh, and the Nugenhan Bank and all the way up through, like, Contra cocaine. But, but this is specifically about the domestic... Uh, disinformation campaign around crack. It's called Drugs, Politics, and Disinformation by Richard Hatch. And it says, if 1985 was the year of the terrorist, 1986 was the year of the drug hype. The drug panic last year was just the latest in a series of disinformation themes manufactured and nurtured by the White House to help the Reagan administration pursue attacks on domestic freedoms and divert attention from more pressing social problems. Throughout 1986, a tide of articles and TV news reports on illegal drugs, particularly the smokable cocaine derivative known as crack, washed through the media. From March to October 1986, NBC News aired more than 400 reports on drugs. CBS received the highest ratings ever recorded for a documentary with its 48 hours on Crack Street. And along with hundreds of other articles, the New York Times ran almost two full pages daily for the week of the President and First Lady's drug crisis living room speech. Although most of the fear was over crack, the anti-drug crusade lumped all drugs together as an evil threat. Yet by early 1987, the torrent had dried up. There were no more TV specials with, with Dan Rather or Geraldo Rivera undercover on drug busts, no two-page spreads in the Times, no more presidential speeches. What happened? The truth is that there was no crisis. The panic was manufactured primarily for political gain. The Reagan administration had refined its techniques of disinformation by allowing the Contras and other mercenary groups to traffic in cocaine to raise money for political purposes, then citing the resultant drug use in its attack on political freedom. The administration's war on drugs was as hypocritical as its refusal to trade arms for hostages. The war against drugs, meanwhile, assumed the existence of an epidemic. However, throughout the period of intense media coverage, the use of illegal drugs, with the exception of crack, continued a years-long decline. While Newsweek editorialized that, quote, an epidemic is abroad in America, as pervasive and dangerous in its way as the plagues of medieval times, the actual number of drug users in the U.S. decreased, especially among the young. The absence of an epidemic is confirmed by figures from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the primary governmental body charged with monitoring drug usage. 
NIDA statistics show that the number of hospital emergency room admissions and deaths associated with drugs stayed fairly constant from 1983 to 1986. At the height of the crisis, the numbers dying from cocaine still did not greatly exceed the total dying from over-the-counter painkillers like aspirin. Alcohol in combination with other drugs killed twice as many as cocaine. Former NIDA head Carlton Turner admitted it was, quote, not an epidemic now. It was one in 1981, but people are just now discovering it. In short, the epidemic consisted of perhaps an increase of 200 to 300 deaths among heavy cocaine users due to an increase in the availability of cocaine. Anatomy of a propaganda campaign. How did the notion of a drug, a drug epidemic propagate through the media? The methodology of the propagators is familiar. Quote, friendly administration assets appeared on talk shows, wrote editorials, and testified before Congress. In turn, their statements were used by, quote, grassroots movements backed by the administration. In this aspect, the war on drugs resembled other Reagan administration propaganda campaigns, such as those of the, quote, yellow rain myth and the, quote, Bulgarian connection. I think that refers to mm-hmm. the idea that the Bulgarians shot Pope John Paul II. Yeah. And yellow, yellow rain, rain was, was that. I remember that like, being in my yeah. science textbook in middle school saying that like communist countries have acid rain and like blah 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 um, well, they, I guess you, the, there was <clears> the idea <throat> they used chemical weapons like you know on uh, in cambodia and in vietnam somehow but yeah it's interesting like there's a lot of different theories about it including that there actually was a u.s origin to it the mention of it uh by uh walter raymond was interesting Mm. Um, maybe he just meant like oh people didn't believe the truth of uh yellow rain but it was interesting how like you know kind of was ambiguous whether they were like oh our attempt to make this up failed i don't know but yeah 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 this is where it gets extra bizarre um The anti-drug craze of the mid-1980s was in large part a recycling of a carefully managed campaign of the early 70s when President Nixon's war on drugs was designed to bolster his law and order image before the 1972 election. The new campaign had a similar function in the 86 elections. Indeed, the personnel involved in the 1970s were at a large degree simply remobilized, in many cases, quote, evidence originally produced more than a decade before and since contradicted was dug up and recycled as, quote, proof of the epidemic. Uh, The, quote, experts, an examination of the experts employed in the latest drug war quickly centers on a group of scientists and bureaucrats who have lobbied against reforms of drug laws for nearly 15 years. These experts form a mixed bag of former DEA officials and scientists, including some who conducted secret research for the CIA and Department of Defense. They mean MKUltra. One such expert is Peter Benzinger, former head of the DEA. He left the DEA in an apparent dispute with President Reagan over a plan to cut its budget and formed a consulting firm to advise business on drug problems. At the height of the anti-drug campaign, he appeared on Meet the Press the morning of Nancy Reagan's chat with the nation to claim that the economic damage to the U.S. was $230 billion and urged children to turn in their parents. In addition to the, quote, consultants to industry like Bensinger, a small group of scientists have lobbied against drugs, particularly marijuana, for the past 15 years. Most of the more active ones appeared as witnesses in 1974 hearings between uh, before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, chaired by Senator John Eastland. The subject was, quote, the marijuana hashish epidemic and its impact on United States uh, security. The hearings bear significantly on the groups and personnel of the new war on drugs. One witness at the hearing was Dr. Robert Heath, whose background is interesting. Since the 1950s, Heath has been studying the human brain. Many of those years were spent working for the CIA and the U.S. Army. Heath was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology at Tulane University in, oh, that's 
huge MK Ultra spot. Um, Tulane <laughs> University in New Orleans from 1949 to 1981, one of several Army research centers at which 3,000 doses of LSD were given to about 1,500 subjects in secret studies. When asked under oath if there was any other work he had done that would be relevant to his marijuana studies, Heath did not mention these earlier experiments. He also dabbled in questionable electroshock therapy and, quote, reprogramming. Heat's main contribution to the anti-drug war was his claim that marijuana causes changes in deep brainwaves in humans. But since he is the only person who has conducted such experiments involving deep implantation of electrodes, his work cannot be confirmed. Also testifying at the hearings, initially behind closed doors because of his previous Pentagon work, was Dr. Hardin B. Jones. He said he had studied drug use in Southeast Asia through, quote, through the arrangements of Major General John K. Singlaub, then Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Drug and Alcohol Abuse. Singlaub, of course, is now most famous for his involvement in the World Anti-Communist League, WACL, and the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, that's very true. Yeah, Singlob is like a major player in Iran-Contra. Um, Jones did not limit to himself to testimony on the health hazards of marijuana. Here, here's a nice one. He also presented his conspiratorial view that the new left was promoting drug use as an attack on authority. He claimed as evidence of this plot, quote, files that I have brought here today and my files at Berkeley, literally thousands of such items, called from the underground press and leftist publications. He even hinted that it might be a communist plan as the Communist Party had not strongly discouraged drug use. Um, so... Uh, yeah. Oh, well, does is, he mean the Communist Party of the United States, like, I uh, or so. in the I Soviet that, Union? Because I'm pretty sure they did discourage drug use. Yeah, uh, they were but, pretty. I mean, if you want to talk about a legit anti-drug government that was protecting kids, uh, definitely the Soviet government was uh, yeah, not very have, kind. I think my old roommate kept it, but I used to have that uh, Niet like uh, drug, you know, drink the alcohol uh, poster. poster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very, uh, very classic. And of course, yes. you know, I mean, so I mean, it, it's so fascinating that like, and and you know, maybe he's not, perhaps he's not wrong that the new left in the U.S. did promote drug yeah. use in a variety of Although, ways. But that's a uh, knock on. They were that's also a, a psyop like yeah, that. Yeah, so tune in, it, drop it, out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And don't vote. Don't do anything. Just, just take LSD. Take LSD yeah. and yeah, go to yeah, a commune. The, the new left, aka the CIA. Uh, yeah, exactly. The new left, so, yeah. We see the again left this wing of the intelligence community, <laughs> is, yeah. as, as Gloria Steinem uh, kind yeah, of called exactly. them. Yeah, exactly. Progressive. Uh, yeah, I yeah. love that there were progressive men at the CIA <laughs> who wanted to sponsor my fake feminism. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, so you constantly see this theme of like they're controlling kind of both sides of this conversation. They are uh, freaking out and making all these wild allegations about the pervasiveness of drugs. They're kind of incorrectly lumping all these drugs in with each other in terms of, like, equating their severity. And then they're using it to call for, like, law and order crackdowns and uh, particularly, you know... I think it, th this gets into very murky water in the 90s when Gary Webb starts to, like, expose the the contra la crack connection because uh there's there's a huge there's a lot of um nits that get picked by kind of pro cia people and quote unquote objective journalists at the time that you know really took issue with his uh i don't know insinuation that perhaps the cia had deliberately flooded um 
black neighborhoods with what it knew was going to be turned into crack cocaine and that the because i think i would take a little bit of an issue i see what the person what richard hatch is going for in this article uh dismissing that there actually is a drug epidemic but i think the overwhelming historical evidence is that crack cocaine did have it at least was an epidemic in black communities in the 1980s and going into the 90s and in certain parts of the country, but definitely in South Central Los Angeles, um, as sort of Ricky Ross and all of his associates talk about, it completely changed the landscape, which re- which had been kind of on an economic downturn because mostly of deindustrialization and a lot of middle class manufacturing jobs going away throughout the 1970s, which was a, a huge you know, economic base of like the black community in Los Angeles. And in this like climate of high unemployment, poverty, desperation to find any way to kind of get out, uh, all of a sudden this drug shows up and it's incredibly easy to make money. Unfortunately, by design, if you're selling it in your own neighborhood, it is almost like a cannibalistic drug that is going to like socioeconomically like cannibalize your own neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Your own yeah. local population. And then you saw this like pattern play itself out. And then of course, it wasn't just the fact that there was crack, but then it was like the police, the violent police reaction to crack um, and a kind of escalation of violence uh, from the police and then also from gangs uh, that basically, you know, caused even further damage. And then, you know, uh, the way it was presented, I think that Richard Hatch is right, that like the way it was breathlessly reported on the national news uh, really was like perfectly designed to like freak people out and probably you know particularly people in the suburbs or you know maybe people that worked in cities but didn't live there uh white white folks basically and you know middle class white folks like freaking them out about this crack thing and um and and you know it's like yeah like crack is like a bad drug like it's worse than cocaine um and it's it's very much like meth today which has kind of a more of a hold in like rural white communities but it's almost i mean it makes you wonder about meth like uh all these like rural white people like just uh don't give them jobs just get, let them tweak out and uh and it's a similar dynamic of like it really it's corrosive like it it undermines like having a safe peaceful community and it, and it justifies the police running around and like because it's like it's a fucking crackhead or it's a tweaker so like you know they they definitely the media did a great job of like dehumanizing quote-unquote crackheads as almost like zombies um and you know yes. going all the way up to like dave Chappelle in the 2000s with like his like crack man uh character remember that yes Like, I I was reflecting on that this week, like, leading up to this episode and how, I don't know, like, I think if you did it today, people would maybe be a little more sensitive to to portraying a drug addict in, uh, like, a homeless drug addict in that way. But there really was kind of like a, there was not very much sympathy for the crackhead because they were seen as almost, they would get turned into, like, wild-eyed animalistic criminals, which, of course probably a lot of white police officers and these police departments and stuff, uh, 
probably that was already how they thought about a lot of the people in these communities. And yes. it, but then it gave a broader societal license to go in and crack heads. And if you shot somebody, yes. well, they were a crackhead. They were probably like, <laughs> yes, pulling a exactly. knife on you or something. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the freeway documentary also like interviews some retired like LA Sheriff's Department people who describe how like the flood of cash into these communities completely like accelerated a culture of corruption and all the police departments because the federal government um, made up these new rules about civil asset seizure and forfeiture in the early 80s. So this would have probably come from the Reagan Justice Department, which I think was Edwin Meese, who was like an extremely sketchy uh, figure. Um, And basically... Like the the new rule became if you could uh, raid a drug dealer's house, everything that you confiscated from them, the agency got to keep it. So it, they said it was not unusual to like bust some South Central crack dealer and he would have like five hundred thousand dollars in his closet in cash. And then, of course, one that's most of that's going to go back in the budget, so you can buy like bigger, bigger trucks, bigger guns, battering rams, all kinds of shit like that, and yeah. beef up your policing. But also, it's like a perfect opportunity to skim off the top. So all these cops, it became totally normalized for all these cops just to like skim off like you know twenty grand here, thirty grand there, and then they would you know they they'd give it to other other people in their unit. One cop describes like sitting in his car outside of the station one day. The way he got quote unquote turned was like. One of his partners just walked up, threw him a paper bag, and goes, there's your cut. And he opened it, and there was, like, you know, $10,000 in it. And he said at that point, it's like there's not even a conversation you have to have. Like, what you just think, like, I had to take this, and now I'm a dirty cop, and I'm corrupt, and I go with it. And if I, you know, give it back or try to report it, then all of my fellow cops are going to look on me like I'm a snitch. And then how long is my career going to last? Am I, are they going to, you know, they could do all kinds of shit to you, right? If uh, you're not in on it with them. And so that culture was like really easily spread and just escalated like to, like I said at the beginning, like to this day where we have cops that are like, you know, just rolling up and shooting people. A lot of this was like, this this type this paradigm of training and the heavy weaponry like the you know cops going from having six shooters to having like an 18 round you know clip of like a clock and um ar-15s and and shotguns and stuff like that like like, tanks and yeah literally i mean daryl gates the lapd chief who uh was uh hilariously the um head of as a young man was the head of like the special intelligence unit that investigated the robert kennedy assassination so he he did some good work for some people it seems like because then he got to be the um the chieftain of the lapd until like the LA riots finally like forced him out. But he was, he was a notorious innovator of the tactic of just like, if somebody, if they got a tip that there was a drug house, they'd take that battering ram and just like rip off the front of your house and then just like leave it. And your house is ruined. And regardless of what they found. And so it was like literally like terrorism against like the black community in South central LA on this like extremely unprecedented scale, but it was more sophisticated because it wasn't about going after, you know, Black Panthers or political people. At that point, they had mostly crushed the Black Panthers, ironic, well, I think relevantly, like by bringing in heroin from the Golden Triangle, which is a tactic. Uh, I think when Richard Hatch talks in this article about how a lot of these like anti drug warriors were recycled from Nixon's uh, camp, you know, anti drug campaign in the early 70s i in a way they recycled the drug flow of the early 80s as well where they were bringing in heroin 
to the United States and flooding black. And I think at that point, it was the mafia that was flooding black communities with it and helped undermine kind of a lot of the radicalism that was going on in addition to COINTELPRO and all kinds of stuff. Um, But even going up to 1980, uh, drug arrests were not a significant percentage of the prison population nationally. Um, it's actually people forget now that even with like the 70s drug war, that the mass incarceration part of it only came about in the 1980s under Reagan. And by the time like Bush left office in the early 90s, um, but really through Clinton and the crime bill, which like Joe Biden supported, the percentage of people, it went to basically being like a majority of the people in prison uh, of a population that had exploded were there for drug related charges and hit with these like mandatory minimum sentences, which of course, right. you know, probably disenfranchised like millions of black men from voting for the rest of their lives and kind of put this scarlet letter on their record. So it, it was pretty hard for them to, uh, you know, move up in life after that. And of course generated a ton of money for the prison industry and, uh, and just continually justified like the police, like getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more, um, you know, really like it, it hushed up a lot of critiques people would have had about policing because there was this scary crack epidemic that, um, is like coming to your town next. And of course it kind of was, but like when the U S government are the people bringing it in, um, that's kind of like relevant to the whole thing that we're discussing. And of course, you know, the, the satanic concealment of that aspect of who's bringing in the drugs has had like profound, uh, a profound negative influence on society that's like still with us. Yes, it is, uh, satanic for sure. (laughs) Yes. It's deeply Uh, satanic. yeah, it really boggles the mind when you contemplate, like, that aspect of this stuff. And, like, just, you know, yeah, and it's something that connects, like, it really is interesting because it's something that, I mean, there is definitely the class divide in terms of crack and cocaine. And maybe there's, like, almost an attempt, especially uh, if you credit the idea of the CIA, like, fabricating crack, Maybe there's some kind of or, or creating it or doing things to, to help sort of generate this this new drug. Um, maybe there, you know, is something to the like sort of the anxiety over like the incestuous sort of transmission of cocaine, like through all like these uh, different orders of society and, uh, you know, the kind of uh, to the pollution of the circulation that's happening of, of these drugs and then and the use of it and try to in some way manage that. But, of course, I don't really think that it has imagined it still is true that it's something that really has its tendrils, like, throughout uh, American society and beyond in a very, like, corrupt and, yeah, very, I think, accurately called satanic way. Damn, Jim, the spot's getting hot. So out of pocket, am I supposed to make a nut? Police looking at niggas through a microscope. In L.A., everybody and their mama sells dope. They trying to stop it. So what the fuck? Make a profit, catch a flight to St. Louis. That's cool, cause nobody knows. We stepped off the plane. Four gang bangers, professional crack slings. Rented a car at wholesale. Drove to the ghetto and checked in a motel. Unpacked, then I grabbed a 3 8 Cause where we stand, niggas look shady. But they can't face our sister. Cause what's in the cap is fundamental. Keeping out every block close. Seeing which one will clock the most. Yeah, this is the one, no doubt. Fuck to you, Bone, and let's clear these niggas out. Hey, hey man, what's up, nigga? This is Willis Lynch, nigga. 
teeth. Bust a cap and out of there in a hurry. Wouldn't you know, a drive-by in Missouri. Them fools got popped. Took that corner next day. Set up shot. And it's better than slanging in the valley. Triple the profit, making more than I did in Cali. Breaking up rocks like Barney Rubble. Cause them rock-ass niggas don't want trouble. And we ain't on edge when we do work. Police don't recognize the khakis and the sweatshirts. Getting bitches and they can't stand a 1991 Tony Montana. Not a shit's like a war, a gang violence. Well, it was never seen before. Punks run when the gap busts. Four Jerry Crow niggas kicking up dust. And some of them are even looking up to us. Wearing our colors and talking that gang fuck. Giving up much love. Time for a street that they never heard of. But if the motherfuckers want to stand strong, so you know the phrase. Once again, it's so. At the top of the news tonight, gangs from South Central Los Angeles, which are known for their drive-by shootings, have migrated into East St. Louis, leaving three dead and two others injured. No arrests have been made. Police say this is a nationwide trend, with similar incidents occurring in Texas. The other thing they, uh, they did do that Gary Webb found in the course of his investigations is that people... Uh, CIA people connected to Blandone. Um, There's one guy named Ronald Lister uh, who lived in L.A. and was uh, was an associate of Blandone's. He was involved in making contacts with the Crips and the Blood gangs and flooding South Central with military-grade assault weapons. So that's another thing that, um, like Ricky Ross and his associates say in that documentary, that you know people had guns and stuff but like in 1983 1984 you started seeing uzis ak-47s mac-10s tech nines like ridiculous like like you know ricky ross's partner was like in the marines he's like man like i hadn't seen that shit outside of like being in the military before Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it was like all over our streets and so i think that actually lends probably like some credence to the idea that maybe um, there was a little more of a conscious, uh, you know, direction going on with these CIA people being like, we want this to tear apart black neighborhoods. And, right. uh, you know, it also makes you think like makes you think of actually the uh, the the Furious Styles monologue from Boys in the Hood. Uh, John Singleton's movie where Lawrence Fishburne is saying like why is there a liquor store on every corner why you know they want us to kill ourselves and he talks about gentrification he's like trying to school everybody on like gentrification and he's like when we all like all these things the drugs the guns like the you know liquor crack whatever like it's all being deliberately flooded he's kind of like an old black panther you know so he's like it's mm-hmm. they it's being deliberately flooded so we can kill ourselves and like lower the property values and then when we're when we bottomed out they're going to kick us all out and they're going to like buy all this stuff all this urban land at like a, a bargain basement price and then they're going to build it back up and you know you drive around la today and uh i'll be damned if they haven't done that to like many neighborhoods that were ravaged by the crack epidemic and gangs and stuff like that like they were like very dangerous and like inexpensive places and finally like when the property values kind of like you know bottomed out and then um a lot of people a lot of people literally got shipped off to like bakersfield in the 90s and 2000s due to some kind of housing some kind of section 8 housing program they almost like forcibly like moved poor people out into like the exurbs and other rural parts of california 
and uh, to kind of like, you know, depopulate these areas further so that then they can go in and like buy up all the real estate and then get these developers to come in. And you see that as like, a, that's another national trend that happens almost in every yeah. city. And um, so like how, you know, I mean, yeah, bringing in assault I mean, weapons and stuff. it makes perfect sense. Like, you know, you know, I mean, this isn't too far removed from we don't really have like thorough documentation, but this isn't too far removed from the same like political culture where we have Nixon saying all these like outrageously racist things. Like it's mm-hmm. not too far away. Like can you do you, like just imagine what H.W. and Ronald Reagan would have said and expressed and really thought about black people behind closed doors and like oh, people who felt so empowered to uh, you know do things that were completely sociopathic. Like, yeah. why, you know, obviously, like, if they're surveying their kingdom and they're like, how do we, you know, cement our power? How do we exercise our control? They obviously had no trouble, like, with the idea of psychological operations being exercised nope. against the American people. Or so, lying or like, cheating you know, to, like, steal an election. Um, yeah, so... And uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was H.R. Haldeman, uh, the, the aide to Richard Nixon, who... Uh, either later said in an interview or he was caught on tape. I forget which one. But he basically admitted that the actual purpose of the drug war was to criminalize specific drugs that could be tied to populations that they wanted to kind of fuck with and repress, which was basically uh, associating marijuana with anti-war activists and hippies and leftists and Mm -hmm. uh, associating heroin with black people. And so at the time, those two drugs were the ones that they went after the hardest, um, you know, basically in a very politicized way to undermine what they saw as like domestic political threats. And, and, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was still alive at that time. And he certainly saw that as, you know, he would say that like black radicals are the greatest national security threat and we need and you know of course anybody in like a new left organization is probably a communist agent and or you know they they might as they might as well be treated as such because you know fuck them and um and and so you see kind of like resurrection of that in but then they found a different drug to do it with and they found this particular variant crack which uh could accomplish it in a way that uh you know is kind of unparalleled because actually uh, oh yeah sorry uh well there there actually is uh i just like was like i had sort of an inkling that there might be and there actually is like a nixon tape with ronald reagan on it uh where it was the day after the united nations uh voted to recognize the ccp field tropic of china um and uh yeah reagan called nixon to come you know to complain and sort of commiserate and uh, he says, you know, last night I tell you uh, to watch that thing on television as I did. Uh, you know, Nixon was like, yeah. And Reagan uh, forged <laughs> ahead and said uh, to see those those monkeys from those African countries. Damn them. They're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. Ooh, so there so you go. Yeah, St. Ronnie. The, yeah, that's the he, mind. And just, yeah, and I'm sure 
I wonder if there's an HW racist tape. Probably. Uh, yeah, he. But, I mean, well, you know. he's so tight. That's why I think it it lends more credence to the idea that he was a lifelong intelligence officer because he is so kind of tight-lipped about and and his son ended up signing another executive order right after 9/11 that classified the records of past presidents, which basically blocked off like a ton of access to documentation from the Bush and Reagan years Mm -hmm. so um you know he's he he minds his p's and q's and i think he yeah well they weren't about covers his tracks nixon happen again yeah yeah i mean i mean he did launch the willie horton ad that was like look at this black animal that like raped a white woman you know like right before he he and and, you know he was uh he was caught on camera like shaking hands with like an ounb uh leader who was like part of like the bill casey actually built something called like the republican like ethnic caucus or something like that that was basically just a grab bag of like fascist and ex-nazi like uh, people from quote unquote captive communist countries. It was like all the Nazis and fascists and sketchballs who got kicked out of, you know, places like Cuba or, you know, Poland or Ukraine. And the OUNB was like deeply involved in that. He actually, Bush had to like denounce this guy because a photo came out of them like buddying up and shaking hands in 1988. But mm. uh, they were constantly flirting with these like Nazis all over the place. And I, you know, you get the, especially because you know george's hw's dad prescott bush like did business with the nazis like through the start of world war ii and almost mm-hmm. got prosecuted under the trading with the enemy act and um you wonder if you know young hw was kind of brought into this network uh you know in the early 50s because his dad was so intimately connected with like this kind of nexus of like alan dulles and the the galen org and uh you know, groups like that that were, you know, fanatically devoted to, like, undermining communism by any criminal means necessary uh, that, you know, he's been in this so long that he knows not to uh, prattle off any, you know, racist kind of stuff. He, he very carefully kind of cultivated his image to be kind of a moderate guy. Um, but if he was, in fact, and I believe he was, like, on both sides of this you know, really oppressive, brutal drug war, and then bringing in all the fucking drugs, it's, it, it boggles the mind, like, how evil that is, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, um, it, it's hard to want... You, you really... It's like staring into an abyss. Like, how evil did George H.W. Bush go? And, of course, there's, like... There's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there about him being a child sacrificing Satanist and things like that. <laughs> and, but it's like, it really, I mean, like, who is this guy? Like, this, 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 this two-faced, like, sinister individual, you know, who, um, who worked his way to the very top of the system. And then, of course, you know, he lost the presidency, but maybe that was a tactical pivot because there were still investigations ongoing about Iran-Contra. And I think if, you know, it, it's, it's worth thinking about that, like, if he had won in 1992, then he wouldn't have been able to pardon all those guys who were still yeah, in the process of yeah. their their cases were still ongoing so they had all been indicted but i don't think they had all been maybe a couple of them pled guilty but there was still ongoing stuff with iran contra and it would have dogged him so what better way to just get them off your trail than to 
you know, be the big man and take an L and let Clinton come in when you know Clinton's not going to pursue it because he was involved in the same exact shit. Yeah. And then that, you know, when people talk about the corruption of the Clintons, like, I feel like this is the most important Clinton corruption story. Like, because it explains, it's like a Rosetta Stone that allows you to explain the whole arc of the Clintons' career. And, like, their coziness with, like, the Empire and the CIA and and deregulating business and, uh, you know, like, these these secret, even the Clinton Foundation. Like, I do believe there probably were a lot of, like, really shady, like you know operations for a variety of nefarious activities that they would have been a conduit for because like they've been tainted almost since the beginning like well before they got to the white house they were corrupt and dirty and they were you know i think when you look at how good of friends the bushes and the clintons became after uh clinton got out of the white house and after bush got out of the white like like a you know they, they founded like a charity together to help haiti doesn't that make your skin crawl yeah. um you know like bill clinton and george hw bush like i i remember they did something right. about like the 2004 tsunami the like, disaster came together yeah the fall exactly and it was like together, what yeah. couldn't we get back to this where it's like bipartisan yeah. and blah 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 well, I and remember it's just, when H.W. died, it was like, he was the exact opposite of this Cheeto. That <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I find um, it, that's yeah. what makes it hard when people talk about the existential threat of, of Donald Trump as like, as, as sort of heinous and grotesque as he is. And, and, you know, and he too is not necessarily exempt from having Iran-Contra connections. But I think we would need our own episode to like spin off into maybe, yeah. uh, maybe he was, because the there was a whole galaxy of money laundering going on to support all of this shit. And another thing, again, probably deserves its own uh, episode. But the other thing that the people might remember of 1987 was the savings and loans stock market crash and the scandal that resulted from that in uh, like, I think they called it like Black October, another October surprise in 87, where the stock market totally went under because all these savings and loans uh, ended up being caught like embezzling or lying about how much money they had or they were involved in kind of weird like money laundering kind of things and there was a big scandal about it but nothing ever really you know stuck uh, i think a few people got kind of scapegoated just like 2008 uh you know a few people like ivan boski and uh you know michael milken right. who later became a big charitable like player that the clintons were connected to all that kind of stuff, like it tanked the stock market and caused like a severe recession. And um, there's a really good book. I haven't finished reading it. I've had it for a while, but it was by a Houston journalist named Pete Bruton called The CIA, The Mafia, and George Bush, published in the early 90s, that kind of advances a hypothesis that this whole network of like financiers that had backed Bush uh, and Reagan politically that were all like super, super tied to George H.W. Bush. Um, a lot of them had mafia ties. A lot of them had CIA connections. And I think uh, Pete Bruton tries to advance a thesis that the savings and loans collapse uh, around the country had a lot to do with Iran-Contra money laundering. And of course, that had to be covered up and not talked about. And the media, of course, didn't do a very good job at all of kind of you know 
pursuing that lead in any way. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's like they, cra- and then, I don't know, it's kind of interesting how then, you know, Bush's son also has a catastrophic economic collapse that is based upon like shady financial practices uh, at the very end of his term and um, leaves us in like an economic wreckage, basically. Though Bush got elected president in 1988, so I guess people didn't even blame him for the savings and loans uh you know, catastrophe, but it just, it's crazy to think that, okay, if you, if you list all of these conspirators, they controlled the White House in an uninterrupted fashion from 1980 to 2008, 28 years. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. Like the, you know, two terms, two terms of Reagan, one term of of Bush to clean, to, to finish the job, so to speak, uh, which I think was ultimately to destroy the Soviet Union, uh, and then Bill Clinton to be the cover-up fresh face, and then George Bush's uh, son to basically take the Iran-Contra enterprise to, like, the next level and, you know, really go mask off and, like, turn America into a global empire. And uh, and then you get, you know, Obama, who's, like, probably was recruited in the CIA in college um, <laughs> um, and yeah. whose mom was probably CIA and maybe dad was CIA. And uh, that's the first somewhat of a break that you get from it. And it's like Obama's kind of too young to be directly connected with uh, with all of this stuff happening. But then you get Trump, and Trump even has connections in the 80s to all this crazy shit. So it's like this is probably the most important political scandal of, like, the last, I don't know, 40 years. I think it's way more important than Watergate. Yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, today these days we have like a Watergate level scandal like every single day, at least every single week. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean that is, but yeah, you're right. It is the ultimate fallacy of like that at least some of the myopia around Trump that uh, that exists. I think he's definitely like a really horrifying symptom of this long-standing political culture. Yes. But yeah, like for sure, uh the whole idea that when he's gone, then, like, everything will just go back to normal. Well, we'll see what happens. But, we'll see what yeah, happens, uh, but I, I think that... Yeah, um, that's definitely an Yeah, idea and of course, if it is President Biden, you will have somebody who at least was involved in the cracking down side of things. Of, yeah, for sure. You know, he literally, like, I think he co-sponsored the, the rule that made, like, yeah. you know, one gram of crack cocaine equivalent to, like, five kilos or some ridiculous fucking thing that yeah, basically made powder... Oppressed- uh, his vice presidential, uh, you know, running mate, uh, that little girl was me. Uh, you know, yeah, he ruined her life. Um, so, you know, he ruined her life, but then she was able to follow his inspiring example to lock up tons of low level drug offenders. Yeah, true. Yeah, so even yeah. You it, was it... <laughs> <laughs> it was not that big. It was not that big. Yeah, so you see it even infected the the already kind of weak and gelatinous Democratic Party, but this like this mindset. Well, I will I will throw a little bit of a thing out for uh, Senator John Kerry, who made some like ginger. I don't know how sincere they really were attempts to. Uh, follow up both. I think he did an investigation into BCCI and then also into the drug contra connection. Yeah, and he did. I guess he complained a lot about how the CIA wouldn't give him information and uh, he had a lot of trouble. Uh, I think he did manage to kind of like broadly say that like it was happening and they looked the other way or, or something along those lines. But typical John Kerry, who is a skull and bonesman, of course. And uh, I remember. Know, like uh well i have this vivid memory of like my mom watching some like 
60 minutes type like boomery documentary about the skull and bones like kind of you know like back mm-hmm. during 2004 and like you know uh and the narrator being like and george bush isn't the only person in the skull and bones and like then there's john Kerry, and my mom was just like <gasps> you know yeah, I just have a very vivid memory of that like yeah, i mean for a, real yeah and they they um, both uh, they both got very mad at journalists who asked them about it and said you know it's a private society and like i'm not going to talk about it uh even yeah, john Kerry. Yeah. uh i think actually they don't tase me bro guy uh, remember him right yes yeah yes. he would at a college he was like asking john Kerry about skull and bones and then they tried to like drag him out and then john Kerry just like sat there awkwardly while they tased him yeah so uh, you know right. you're not allowed to you know uh talk about that but mr mr threw his medals over the white house fence uh he failed to get to the bottom of this um and there was a guy named lawrence walsh who kind of was maybe the more direct comparison to robert Mueller, who seemed to he was actually still investigating it throughout the bush presidency in the early 90s but then he basically got just the door slammed in his face and then I think when Bush pardoned all the people on his way out, that's what killed his investigation. And he wrote kind of a more mainstreamy friendly book called Firewall, which I haven't read, so I can't totally speak to like the value of it. But he at least was a little bit more uh, downbeat than Arthur Lyman in saying like there was a there was a deeper truth there. Mm-hmm. And John, I yeah. sent you know I, I tried to get to it, but Bush basically you know he he locked it down and we're now we're never going to have official confirmation that this happened but i think given everything we've assembled here i think it's uh yeah john John Kerry did say in uh in 1986 according to this uh covert action magazine yes um from summer of 1987 he said in uh june 1986 the Contra infrastructure consists of the supply lines for the Contras used to move man, money, and supplies and munitions to the Contras. They have been able to gain a license, if you will, of access to airfields, of the muting of customs officials, an ability to be able to circumvent the law in the name of national security. In the name of national security, we can produce specific law enforcement officials who will tell you that they have been called off drug trafficking investigations because the CIA is involved or because it would threaten national security. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. They you know, they actually yeah, do seem to be. Something. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah, um, props, he he uh, went there a little something. bit, but it was kind of like okay, Senator Kerry. That's that's nice. Um. Nobody yes. cares. And yeah, yeah the, the media just kind of chose not to like run with it and make a big deal out of it. Um. Which you know maybe when we get to the Larry King, Craig Spence kind of stuff, maybe uh the amount of people they had blackmailed had something to do with uh nobody wanting to talk or just uh I don't know anybody that said anything would get charged with twenty three years for perjury in a federal court um i think maybe before before we wrap up here uh i think we mentioned in passing a couple times but i i I think i would implore people to go and watch the montel williams special from 1996 Mm -hmm. about the cia crack connection which features gary webb the journalist mike levine the former uh undercover narc and uh representative charles wrangle who was a very suspicious presence there there were a lot of congressional black caucus who were very supportive of this idea uh, exposing this thing in the 90s but then like Maxine Waters who actually wrote the foreword to Gary Webb's book Dark Alliance and um, and some other South Central Congress people who arranged like the infamous town hall meeting where CIA director John Deutsch went and got yelled at from everybody and then uh, Michael Rupert like called him out for 
being a drug trafficker and uh it was kind of a pr nightmare but then you like turn on the tv today and they're just talking about like russia gate and how like we need to trust the cia's judgment to like take out the orange president and it's like oh man like i mean it, it's fine if you want to be against you know trump but like do you have to also bury like like what what happened to these people over time did they just did they try to do something and then just saw that nothing was going to be acknowledged about it? Or again, is it like a Clinton thing where they know now that if they bring this up, it's going to take down the Clintons and it's like mutually assured destruction for the two parties. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I would uh, say that, uh, yeah, it's worth watching. Montel's really on, on one on this show. And it's like, I watched it with my friend last night again, and he was uh, he was kind of blown away that you know this didn't become a big story because he's like it's like I'm watching an alternative universe of like the '90s yeah. because like well, all put, yeah, yeah in terms ahead. of it being a story they put tons of money into like you know they really marshaled like all their resources all their like trained people at like controlling narratives and things like that into like exactly that preventing it from being like a, a narrative preventing it from being a story and yeah, controlling yeah. the way this is processed and remembered so yeah i mean it makes they sense did it. in a way and and of course you know the uh the the big fake news uh purveyors of of you know of, of yesterday and today were intimately involved in the cover-up like washington uh, washington post new york times la times basically all ganged up and like they almost declared their own subliminal jihad against gary webb for publishing this series and they like they actually la times uh assembled what they called a get gary webb team and like they had like you know a dozen journalists working around the clock picking apart his dark alliance series right and they were yeah. able to find like little nitpicky things that like were you know unverified or like un like little tiny errors and they basically blew it up into all these like huge stories about how like gary webb discredited uh and um particularly right. and an interesting thing about that is uh in yeah, the freeway like, a, like mostly false you know yeah like actually yeah like uh you know yeah. yeah, just really like I give this uh, three Pinocchios for you know blah blah yeah. blah, but but um they basically ruined Gary Webb's journalistic career and which then kind of ruined his life and he like had to declare I think bankruptcy and he lost his house I think he got separated from his wife and then in 2004 he shot himself two times in the head. Yeah, love to commit suicide uh, by just double tapping myself yeah. in the head uh, twice. Uh, I mean, yeah. a, a lot classic of classic people... way to commit suicide. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially when like you've uh, pissed off H.W. Uh, Bush. Uh-huh. Just you know the classic way to kill yourself. You know it yeah, was gotta, it technically was and yeah. much like uh, maybe Mark Lombardi, uh, the conceptual artist who died in 2000 when George W. Bush was running for president. Uh, this was in 2004, so a re-election year, and uh, maybe Gary Wegg had some some new you know he had some juice left in the tank to go after the Bushes, and uh, though. Of course, it should be mentioned that his ex-wife, Michael Rupert, Mike Levine, all these other people insist that, like, no, he really did kill himself. Uh, But they still blame the CIA 
and the media for ruining his life, which said, like, they basically hounded him till he had nothing left, and then he killed himself. But still, a little bit, uh, Rick Ross. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like, uh, it's almost too perfect. But yeah, I mean, it's totally possible that he did commit suicide in despair, and that, like, yeah, uh, it was. And if you do shoot yourself once, it is possible to, to, like, not quite do it, it, and then you're going to shoot yourself again. Yes, but, yes. Uh, but, 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 uh, like, you know, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, like, it's a little I, yeah. bit too, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, uh, yeah. are, are, either way, I do hold the CIA responsible for his death. Yes. Um, um, that's how we should look at it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so his thing was all. His life was ruined. Um, nobody else really could come out and uh, and say anything. Actually, an interesting thing is that Mike Levine says in the Freeway documentary when they bring up like Gary Webb's suicide, he says like at that Montel show, he took Gary aside afterwards because Gary was uh, was kind of highlighting this this theory that the CIA like you know flooded black neighborhoods targeted them specifically for crack and stuff like that and I guess Mike Levine said something interesting where he's like I took Gary aside and I said you know Gary man you're going about this you're going about this in a dangerous way because you know they're gonna they're gonna make this into a black thing now they're gonna say it's like a black conspiracy theory and like I think you're you're uh and he's like well no that's like not what I'm doing Mike like I, I I'm not trying to like I'm just you know and he's like yeah but like when you when you sit there and let people say it and like you don't you know speak up to it you know they're they're gonna pigeonhole you and then that's how they're gonna get you and marginalize you and uh he said he claims that like that's kind of what happened with it in a kind of weird way is that it i don't know uh, i don't know how well, i that feel about what that montel was concerned about in the show too that's what yes. he kept saying like you know yeah they're yeah gonna they're, they're gonna say, call oh, me a I'm crazy black boy. person yeah exactly and it's yeah. worth noting the racism of, you know, when we want to get into if anybody's calling us conspiracy theorists, like you're actually racist uh, because <laughs> that's um, that's racist as fuck because that was a tactic that seemed to be somewhat effective in the climate of the 90s to say, oh, well, this is, you know, the black community always says everything's like a CIA conspiracy and they're just, you know, they always have some nefarious explanation for the U.S. government's doing this to us on purpose. And now it's like yeah. – Weirdly, that's more normalized now. The idea that the U.S. government would act in malice to, like, uh, disadvantage the black community or, like, actively do harm to them um, is mm-hmm. much more, uh, in a bizarre way, like, uh, like kind of accepted on, like, mainstream news. Like, people will talk all about it. You know, they'll talk about the new Jim Crow and, like, uh, yeah. all this kind of stuff. But, like, it never gets to this point. At this point, I feel like you still would be called a paranoid like parentheses black conspiracy theorist if you were a yeah. black person that went on msnbc and started talking about cia crack in the 90s that well, there, there would be a lot of, of nervous kind of uh, i don't know about that uh, you know there's a lot of interesting issues at play when you think about the tra- again this goes back to like our theme when we talk in like a meta sense about the transformation like conspiracy like sort of culture over like the past couple of decades because i was actually having a conversation with some of my friends uh some of my, my friends in our muslim group chat uh shout out to them chat uh so yeah like uh you know we we're, were talking about q and uh you know someone uh said well uh i want you know we we're talking about how q is mostly like a, a white phenomenon like it seemed that mostly the people who were into uh q were were white and i sort of mentioned like well you know uh it's because q is really like as we kind of talked about in our episode it's like a messianic movement around trump and trump is like much more popular around, among 
white people like that's a mm-hmm. very constitutive element of q yeah but like real like in uh is i was like well how come black people don't like care about this you know the pedos and I'm like well really like black people have been into it for way longer yes. like it was considered to be like you know a, a crazy black thing you know like uh and even today there's like some remnants of that with like the you know people scoffing at like the idea of like the the illuminati in the music industry there's certain conspiracy theories that still have that kind of association and are, and, know, and they like, do have uh, a strong currency often it's not just like, like uh you know uh mario from vigilant citizen uh the evangelical who's interested in like all this illuminati music industry shit but it is often yeah. as we will talk about like next week it is like like black musicians and people in like rappers and hip-hop artists and things like that that have come out and you know all the way up to like bob who talked about cloning centers and like flat earth and like <laughs> flat earth yeah flat yeah Line. Yeah. Flatline. <laughs> Pulled the last time. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, but no, but I think yeah. there's also there is like there there is a a lower threshold for kind of um yeah disbelief that something nefarious and organized like by rich people who are usually like rich white people is going yeah. on. I mean these are the descendants of people who well, because built they've the experienced slave trade. people remember Tuskegee experiment. You know like it's and they remember yeah. like the Nile. So yeah, there's distrust because it's a hundred percent justified. Yeah, they, um, they've been yeah, more like exposed to it. Now people are catching on. Like now it's like woke. But so yeah, like uh, but again, like yeah, and it's interesting how there are these there are transformations happening. Uh, but yeah, and like you could maybe tie this together with some of the if like it's a class thing where like you know there's like now it's sort of associated with this, like ignorant Southerners maybe or like you know sort of the the Scots Irish uh, like uh, there's some <laughs> aspect of that there too like yeah like alien abductees like out there wearing the tinfoil hats I mean yeah you know mm. just spitballing but there's, that is true, like, like, there's interesting yokels, dynamics yeah. and the sort of instrumentalization of the idea of the conspiracy theorists and the different like ways that it's racialized and, and understood I mean there's an aspect of that in the in the Muslim community with you know 9-11 conspiracy theories like that's also like definitely a thing because well, like, i mean uh, it affects your community yeah. directly yeah it matters so, uh whether yeah, you know yeah. who did this and why and all these things yes 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 um and, and yeah. people witnessed like the incredible like you know crackdown and like the deception and the spying that happens and yeah. so there is a lot of distrust and so, yeah like uh it's natural that people will be like uh you know these people claim that they were muslim you know i remember like uh yeah one of uh, my old imams back in new york would uh or at that one of the masters i used to go to uh he would uh, always say that like you know just because muslims did this are people who were told are muslim you know like uh, whenever they mentioned that like, <laughs> well but, i yeah, mean muhammad atta as daniel hopsicker wrote in his book welcome to terrorland about the hijackers lifestyle in yeah, south florida uh muhammad exactly. atta pretty big fan of strippers and cocaine yeah. and getting drunk and they did uh, they did haram they did haram they did a lot uh, of haram um yes yes yeah, so makes you wonder anyway yeah but uh we'll definitely talk at least some of the stuff uh down the line for sure yeah yeah yeah. and i I think um i'm not sure what our next kind of uh uh installment on iran contra would be it might have to be like larry king craig spence uh maybe Mm -hmm. the third i don't know if we maybe do that and maybe build up to uh the grand finale which i think was like the uh, project hammer destruction <laughs> right yeah, yeah. maybe not project hammer but yeah, yeah yeah like the the grand destruction of communism which is like the 
like satanic goal that all these people were pursuing the entire time the thing that in their minds justifies everything they did but i think we definitely got to get in the uh the little pedo ring angle because Mm -hmm. uh if maybe you know maybe you think that uh selling cocaine is cool and you're not morally uh shaken to the core yet that these people are absolute psychopaths yeah maybe uh, you're one of the listeners we picked up from red scare and uh, (laughs) you yeah are a proponent of of cocaine you just think it's like whenever whenever yeah exactly yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, they de- we definitely got some of the vocal fry audience, I think, you know, definitely. Uh, yeah, like the vocal fry enthusiasts, maybe there's some crossover, um, you know, coming from I that. welcome, I welcome yeah. everyone, yeah. really. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But, uh, but for now, I think, I think we can wrap it up there. I think we're just about three hours. So uh, okay. I think that was a good, yeah. good, healthy app. I hope um, yes. we've impressed upon uh you know the true history of the war uh, the war of drugs um yes uh yeah just yeah if anybody uh tells you that it's cool to uh fund like a paramilitary death squad in a latin american country uh just say no just say no (laughs) exactly just say no no. um so yeah yes don't say yes to that and uh and until Dare next time to not say yes yeah so. yeah yeah so uh yeah we'll uh we'll see you all next time um for those who uh want to catch us uh yeah the next episode we're we're gonna take actually we're gonna take a brief detour into um maybe all of this maybe a kind of broad cultural zeitgeist of the early 80s from a soviet perspective next yeah, time that's all on, that's all wara on the all wara um, frequency so if yeah, you want to hop on app. that will be yeah when we yes uh yeah. yeah you you can go to uh, patreon.com slash supplemental jihad and hop on the all war frequency um you can also stuff. get all this yeah. you can also get all the links and show notes of all the many articles and books and youtube documentaries that we discussed in this little marathon um but we will be back on on the public uh frequency next week to talk about memphis horror core and uh yeah, some getting into some really Halloweeny stuff. Yes, it's it's spooky season has begun in earnest. Uh, it's truly underway. Yeah, so. it truly is. Um, so we'll see y'all there. Um, yep. But until then, until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. True American horror, Reaganomics, night of the living base heads, I ran Contra, the CIA ran guns and drugs from Nicaragua, looking for a front to cover a black market, run black ops, blindfold the Congress and funnel poor people into cells for a profit, listen to the evil that these devils concocted, listen to the evil. The real Rick Ross was an everyday hustler who was propped up by agents undercover. Blinded by pride to the lies of another, they disguised as a poor Miami drug runner. Supplied with ingredients to fire up the oven. Next thing you notice, every block got flooded. Buying up the freeway, flying up above it. He thought he was a dawn till they played him like a puppet. Little did he know that he was copping from the government. DEA agents engaged in the smuggling. LAPD battered ran, ran him up with it. Meanwhile, Ricky's in the cell on some sucker shit. Locked in the box while they pardoned him. 20 years later, came home disgusted. Turn on the radio, Rick Ross running shit. What the fuck is this? Now some white kids bumping and imagine they hustling. Found with some white in the bag and that's nothing. 25 to life for crack, well that's justice. Sorry I'm a hater, but my anger's so productive. Said he was the truth, so we had to discuss this. Drug dealer fantasy Americans in love with. From hip hop to TV shows, the world is
is a trap cause God's a CO. You know, it, it, when you're young and, and you're impressionable and the devil is alive, then you see something and you say, oh man, that shit is real. The devil is alive. Sell drugs, get rich. Another rapper spitting bullshit. Schools closed, locked in. Killer cops occupied by the dope is. Overdose to the double homicide. Bow your head cause a lot of people died. It went away for just trying to survive. Motherfucker cause the devil is alive. Is it truth or it's fiction? Is it you or the fiction? When they strung out on that shit and the youth come up missing or they laying on the table in the room for a mission. It's a tragedy of fools. This is true. People's history calling it a war but it's more like an industry. Cautionary tale how they profit off of misery and sell it right back to the poor who they consider cheap. They re-up and repeat. It's retort and retold. It's reborn and reused. Today come and repo. Just like with the rapper that's using my name, Rick Ross, I believe he's giving kids the wrong impression that you can go out and sell drugs. And we, we mentioned, obviously, that Reagan was in power when he authorized uh, this, this secret war down there. But, you know, Clinton's in power now, and now those are the folks who put Danilo Blandone on the federal payroll. I mean, the guy that brought crack to L.A. is now a federal government employee. employee. Because the devil is alive. 